VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, April the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get off to a flying start. That can only happen if you join us live on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26. Did I just hear Brian Mador say the bit of sunshine coming tomorrow? Because it's been a long stretch of this old RDF in this part of the island. So hopefully a little bit of sunshine because that would go a long way. All right, big weekend in hockey starting with up at the DF Barnes Arena, the uh, Avalon Celtics Minor Hockey Association presented by Exile Restaurant at Jag, the under nine select hockey tournament. Now it just doesn't really sound like it makes sense when you say it out loud that this is probably not only our marquee event as an association but it's probably one of the very best hockey tournaments of the year place was packed the entire weekend the players whether they won or lost were having a tremendous time so it was a super fun event so congratulations to the winners because someone's got to win so the ghouls southern shore win the abby newhook division and paradise warriors they won the alex newhook division so congratulations ward Avery and his tournament committee because that was just a fabulous weekend in the ring oh speaking of newhooks uh congratulations to their mother paula newhook ran the london marathon this weekend and killed it so if anyone else that you know was participating in london at one of the five majors let us know all right stick with other hockey tournaments so the southern shore breakers have won their seventh herder championship in five games over the deer lake red wings bit more of a competition than i think people were anticipating the consensus going into this certainly in this part of the province and of course a bunch of homers is that southern shore would really make very quick work at deer lake not so fast really competitive uh, herder championship so congratulations to both teams and certainly to the breakers and head up to dundas ontario to the allen cup i was following along yesterday and Clarenville was made up of players from the Clarenville Caribou, and they picked up a bunch of other players to strengthen the team from the teams that were not competing in the herder from the Avalon East. They were up 2-0 almost midway through the third period and then lose 5-3. Dundas and McCoy scored five in the third, but good run by the lads representing the province. Okay, and if you follow along the NHL playoffs, the three Canadian teams, the Leafs are up 2-1 over Tampa Bay. The Oilers, great game last night. Oilers beat the Kings. Now that series is tied at two. The Jets are down 2-1 to Vegas, but let's go. All right, here's an interesting one. This is radio, but let's talk a little TV. So, you know, we take so much for granted. You flick on your computer, you open up your cell phone, you watch the television. A television signal was bounced off a satellite for the very first time at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in 1962. And remember, we talked about this a little bit last week, that the annual rate height application to be evaluated and announced or decided upon on July the 1st from Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, they are proposing a rate increase of 6.9%. So we know what that means, considering here we are, mid-end of April, still with the heat on the house. It's been frigid cold. And, of course, remember that the carbon tax will be applied, the federal carbon tax scheme. So next winter will be even more dear to pay our hydro bills. So whatever angle you want to tackle that from, whether it be the quote-unquote essential final commissioning at Muskrat Falls or anything else, you know what to do. All right, so here we are entering week number two of the PSAC strike. So apparently they're going to amp it up this week. And the president, Chris Aylward, says they're going to move some of the picket lines to more strategic locations, including ports. So disrupting government revenue stream 
as opposed to simply the picket lines that we've seen them on the entirety of last week. So the frustration is growing, but that's nature of the beast. Day number one, and I do indeed feel bad for the striking workers out in the rain and the wind and the freezing cold temperatures, but they don't think that they're getting much in the way of traction or response from government, so they are going to ratchet up the affairs beginning today. So we'll see if that brings any more public pressure to bear. And where this lands, nobody knows. They say they have made some progress, but the workers represented inside the Treasury Board. So some work made on wages, some compromise on remote work to be enshrined in the new collective bargaining. No movement on the CRA workers' file as of yet. So we'll see where it goes. And I don't know what public support looks like or feels like, but if you want to tackle it from any angle, you know the place to do it is right here. Curiously, so we actually spoke with Chris Aylward last week, or leading into the strike, I can't remember what it was, and he said that the workers voted an overwhelming majority to in favor of a strike, and of course they find themselves on it today. But here's some numbers of interest. Only 35% of the 120,000 striking federal workers actually even cast a ballot which is a bizarre low number. And inside of that, the 42,421 PSAC members that did vote, 80% voted in favor of a strike. But you wonder why only 35% even voted in the first place. But here we are in week number two, and we'll see if there's any movement this week. Encouraging, I suppose, on the Treasury Board side. Maybe not so much on the CRA side. Okay. Let's talk a bit of air travel for a second. Before we get into the legislation that was tabled by the federal government last week to strengthen up the Passenger Bill of Rights, which we'll get to, but there are some questions being posed about how many flights were unable to land at St. John's International Airport over the weekend. Maybe because of fog, but so many of the smaller aircraft did touch down. Some of the bigger jets did not. So the questions were being asked. You know, we spent all that money to install the CAT-3 system, which was supposed to enable flights to land even in the foggiest conditions. That question was posed on Twitter. And now there is uh, some comments or reaction coming from the airport itself, the airport authority. They say the instrument landing system is fully operational. However, there are several factors involved with the current low visibility conditions. First, aircraft must be compatible with the landing system. Second, when low visibility combines with certain types of crosswinds, aircraft can have issues landing and potentially choose to divert or cancel even when they are CAT-3 compatible. Okay. All right, moving on to the federal legislation. We know what the travel chaos looked like last year. We know the number of complaints that were in front of the uh, Canada Transportation Agency. Now, something to be said about that agency as well. But anyway, the government has tabled legislation to try to deal with this, whether it be the chaotic uh, conditions inside of airports and the backlog of complaints. So, number one, and this comes across to me as pretty hollow. They are going to propose a $250,000 maximum fine for airline violations. That's a tenfold increase. The problem there is that the transportation agency was basically simply dealing with passenger complaints. To my recollection, last year the number of fines aimed at the airlines themselves tallied zero. So, okay, $250,000. Are they going to apply any of these? So they're also going to put the regulatory cost of fielding and uh, dealing with complaints on the shoulders of the carriers themselves. So when you make a complaint, you're going to get a decision within 30 days as opposed to what we saw last year. There's going to be a compliant resolution officer at the CTA, which should speed things up. They are going to be able to still avoid maybe some compensation associated with passengers' delayed luggage, though not for lost luggage. 
So there still seems to be a bit of gray area here. There's also going to be the opportunity for, here's what they say, legislation fails to ensure transparency for the complaints process and leaves too much discretion in the hands of the regulator. So it points out to one amendment in particular, that the process shall be kept confidential unless the complainant and the carrier agree otherwise. So we will inevitably see more smoke and mirrors with the airlines and they deal with legitimate passenger complaints. And also things like they say, flights were diverted or long delays because of uh, safety purposes, when in fact some of that was they didn't have a crew. They opened back up, people were thirsty to travel, and consequently booked a lot of flights, and they were short on crew, which is not necessarily my fault. So you want to take it on, let's do it. Sticking with the feds for a bit. This is a huge number, and I'm not really so sure what to make of all this. So in the world of corporate handouts or corporate welfare or corporate bailout, the largest such initiative was announced late last week regarding Volkswagen and the construction of their first electric battery vehicle, pardon me, electric battery plant in North America, which is in St. Thomas, Ontario. Okay, we've talked about the fact that we've got the critical minerals required for EV batteries and for cell phones, laptops, and otherwise. So again, it doesn't matter if you're all in on electric vehicles, there will be an appetite for it in the general public. Okay, so the largest such corporate welfare or corporate bailout happened years ago when the federal government bought $4.5 billion worth of GM. Now, it was gave us a bit of equity, even though we sold those shares at a loss eventually. But here comes Volkswagen. They have to spend $7 billion to build this plant. And then after they begin producing batteries, there will be somewhere in the neighborhood of $13 billion of tax subsidies that the uh, company will not have to pay. So there's a few thresholds that need to be met. So Volkswagen builds the plant, okay. And then there's no, I don't understand exactly how the tax subsidies will work. There are some targets out there to be hit. So some people were telling me the government gave them $13 billion. There's a slight difference between giving someone $13 billion versus tax subsidies, although this is absolutely corporate welfare. So. When the uh, American government put in forward their Inflation Reduction Act, this really brought this country a lot of worry and angst that a lot of the new uh, efforts here, including this type of plant, would go to Mexico and the United States. So it feels like we're in a bit of an auction time here, doesn't it? Because $13 billion is an awful lot of money to Nazi flowing into the uh, federal coffers. Now, they talk about the economics upside, and of course they do. So they say it's going to generate some $200 billion for the Canadian economy over the coming decades. There will be some 3,000 direct jobs at the plant, and the size of this place is just unbelievable. So it's going to be the size of 350 football fields. Construction to be completed by the end of 2027. So even if you add up 3,000 jobs against 13 billion, what's that, some $450,000 per job per year? Anyway, that's a lot of money flowing to Volkswagen. So, you know, the thought, I suppose, is that there should be some supply chain control and secondary or tertiary processing or manufacturing in this country, but I don't think that's going over very well. Now, certainly if you listen to the opposition parties, they call this a complete waste of money. Does it have the cost-benefit analysis that makes it even a reasonable thing to do, let alone a, a, a wise thing to do? Anyway, you want to take it on. That's a load of money that we're talking about there. Anyway, and no equity, right? All in the form of tax subsidies based on production levels, but absolutely zero equity in the profitability, which will absolutely be part of VW's portfolio. Okay, 
So we found out late last week that the residents of Galtus have voted against relocation. So 64% of the residents voted in favor, and of course the benchmark that had to be hit was 75%. This is the third time that Galtus has voted against it, so sounds like that conversation is now moot. All right, I do think that the folks on Galtus talking about the process for who's eligible are absolutely right. Last April, when the process began, if you were a permanent resident of Galtus, you would retain the ability to vote even if you left before the vote actually formally took place, which really doesn't make any sense. So if five or seven eligible voters had left, that gave the leave vote a head start because you know full well if you've already committed and you've left and you're already set down routes elsewhere, you're going to vote in favor so that you'd be eligible for the two hundred and fifty to $270,000 cash. So we've got to figure out the process. It just has to make a bit more sense. Even if they were still eligible for compensation but did not get a vote, that would probably bring us a little bit closer to fairness. But the residents who voted in favor of staying, I'm sure, are quite chuffed with the outcome today. And, of course, it's not just about whether or not they hit the threshold. Government would have to assess if it represented any savings for government. And they say that over the course of two decades, the savings would have been in the neighborhood of $14 million versus the $10 million price tag for the relocation take place. And some of the savings might have been, say, for instance, uh, with the ferry, which is heavily subsidized, savings of about $940,000 per year. There's also the cost of keeping the school open. Victoria Academy has five students enrolled at this moment in time, savings annually of $250,000. Then you add in the MOGs or the municipal operating grants and some capital work projects, access to health care and what have you. But the process is absolutely flawed. But Galtus residents are staying. Over the weekend, a ton more families have been chiming in via email, and hopefully, like I asked them, encouraged them, or invited them to do, is to join us live on the air to talk about the fact that their children no longer have a daycare space. Now, $10 a day sounds like an excellent program, but the province was simply not prepared in the number of accessible spaces. Now, of course, you can't flip a switch and all of a sudden you'll have all the required new early childhood educators in place, and hopefully the pay grid that was recently announced will help on that front. But whether your children are on the spectrum, the autism spectrum, or they have mobility issues or what have you, the government is parsing their words very carefully on this one. They say that they can't, even in the world of inclusivity, that they can't force the operators to have these children, with exceptionalities as we're calling them, in the daycare. But if you are told simply that you're dismissed or you're not going to be even welcomed on a wait list because of this, that really does bring along a, a discriminatory tone to me. So the numbers of families is really quite something. I'm guessing maybe six or seven just over this weekend chiming in on this story, and hopefully they'll take the time to call because this presents a massive issue. Imagine having to face the decision to quit your job or leave the province. And one such family, I was actually flipping channels over the weekend watching some news, and they, it made the national news, which is not a good look, but fair ball, good program. I think there's a big economic upside to it, but people, if you can't get a space, period, or you're a parent of a toddler or a parent of a child with uh, one of these exceptionalities, then $10 a day is just a fleeting hope. So, And there's so many uh, different issues that we can indeed talk about today. How are we doing on the phone there, David? Very quickly, uh, good luck to all the participants in the largest high school hockey tournament that begins the Day. It's the Royal Newfoundland uh, Regiment Memorial High School Hockey Tourney. 16 boys teams, 12 girls teams. Throughout the entirety of the week, they'll be competing. So we wish them nothing but the best of luck. And of course, didn't do much talking about health care today or what have you, but that's always on the front burner if you'd like to pick up 
that particular ball. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's get the week off to a flying start. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on line number two. Say good morning to the president of the Association of Psychologists here in the province. That's Dr. Janine Hubbard. Dr. Hubbard, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Thanks for making time for the show. Oh, thanks to you as always. So there's 210 registered psychologists in this province. You received responses from 111 of them associated with a variety of things concerning their profession. Number one, what do we know about where psychologists are working, public versus private sector? Well, what we've seen is a shift over the last number of years. Um, back in 2017, roughly, um, what, over 70% of psychologists were working in the public sector as their primary place of employment. And now we're looking at uh, 57% of psychologists listing public sector as their uh, main source of employment. So we're seeing a real shift, which echoes what we've been seeing over the last number of years, which uh, we raised as an area of concern around this time last year that we were seeing this mass exodus of psychologists from the public sector. And so what does that mean in real terms? Is it just simply the extension of how long you'll have to wait to see a a psychologist? Are there any specific areas where they've left in droves that is a major concern? Well, absolutely. It means that very often you're not able to see a psychologist um, because the positions have been filled uh, with other uh, mental health practitioners, which uh, in some cases can be really helpful. But we are really concerned because in many places in our public sector positions, the vacancy rates are 50% or above. Um, And so that means that being able to see a psychologist is involving extremely long wait lists if there is even a psychologist now associated with that program. So that's a snapshot of today. What does that mean for the future insofar as graduates from psychology schools for mentoring or on-the-job training or what's required? Well, again, uh, what we've been seeing, fortunately, over the past year is sort of a stabilization. Um, You know, we've seen a few people leave. We've had a couple people uh, join so that the mass exodus has stabilized, at least for now. And I think some of that is due to some of the government initiatives that have been put in place, which is great. But um, we graduate very small numbers of psychologists, which means to try to backfill those positions, let alone create new additional positions, um, you know, we're looking at uh, either some massive recruitment from out of province or, um, you know, it could be a good 10 years uh, before you're looking at having the kind of numbers uh, that would fill the existing positions. Let's go right to one specific area in the K-12 system. Mm-hmm. The school district now, I guess, inside the Department of Education, there was staff of psychologists available to schools and their students, and I think for the staff as well. So, Inside that world, I know a little bit about it because I have a a partner, my wife is Mm -hmm. a teacher. What are we seeing there? Well, we're concerned there because we have a large number of those psychologists who are eligible to retire in the next couple of years. So we're not seeing quite the same number of vacancies currently, um, but the big concern there is um, we haven't had a training program in the province to train school psychologists uh, since uh, 2019, which means we have no new graduates to fill those positions. 
Um, and certainly as the uh, association, you know, we've spoken with the Department of Education. We've spoken um, with the school board. We've, you know, sort of suggested some proposals for ways to create a new training program that actually would attract people from certainly from Atlantic Canada, if not across the country, um, because they know that this um, these vacancies are coming and there's nothing in the works to uh, train and fill the position. So we're not sure um, what they're planning on doing. I don't know how to say that. How aggressive is the private sector in recruiting inside the public sector for psychologists? Not at all. Um, the thing is, most psychologists who work privately are uh, working for themselves. Uh, it may be within an agency, uh, but generally speaking, they are self-employed. So it's not that, uh, you know, we have uh, large firms coming and saying, you know, dangling all kinds of incentives. Okay. It's usually, uh, to talk to most of our psychologists, it's honestly often their last choice. It's the, I've given the public sector the best I possibly can. I've been trying. Uh, this is the work I want to do. There are aspects of this work, whether it's the collegiality, whether it's supervision, whether it's teaching. You know, there are all these things that people want to do in the uh, public sector. And then sometimes they're doing a little bit of private on the side, like one evening a week, for example. Um, but then at a certain point, they just say, I'm feeling really unhappy and I'm not feeling wanted or appreciated during the day, and um, there are private clients who are clamoring and wanting to uh, be seen. They talk about some of the areas that could be addressed to see them more content in their role, certainly yeah. in the public sector. And one is about understanding the role, the education or skills of a psychologist. I think people, if you've never seen a psychologist, have a base understanding of what a psychologist is offering, what they can do, and the training that they have. So where do you think some of the gaps are in public knowledge about psychology? Well, and it's not even so much the public knowledge. It's been some of the decisions that have been made to treat all mental health professionals as interchangeable counselors or mental health um, providers of some sort. So it's not just psychologists getting lumped in there. There's often, you know, three or four different professions. But treating all professions um, as a uh, homogeneous group is not going to help because it doesn't allow for the skill sets of each of those groups to come out. And it means that basically nobody's practicing to scope. Um, and sometimes it's uh, being asked to deliver programs or being asked to deliver services in a way that really isn't very satisfying. Um, and that is one of the things that we've heard. Uh, one of the factors that we know can influence things like workplace burnout is not having a voice at the table, not being included in decisions about how changes are maybe being made or how services are being delivered. And I know that's one of the very frequent uh, conversations we have. And it's also a lack of understanding that psychology involves so much more than just the face-to-face -face, um, therapy. It may involve diagnosis. It may involve psychometric assessment. It involves a lot of supervision and training and consultation. And these are things that when there's a focus on, well, the numbers, how many people did you see in a day, it misses out on some of that richer opportunity or the skill set that's available. I assume some of that falls into the second bullet point offered about increased respect. But let's talk about a Economy. Where is that lacking? Because, you know, I don't know how diligent the oversight is, the monitoring or what have you, or evaluation of job performance. What, are, what is included inside increased autonomy? Well, increased autonomy 
autonomy is the ability to, using clinical judgment, using best practice, um, knowledge of the research, say, this is what I think this client needs in order to make the best progress possible. And maybe in some cases that is a psychometric assessment, which can be very time-consuming. But that might be what is in the best interest of the client. Um, Or it could be a decision of, actually, you know what, this person, what they really need is service X, but service X either we're not allowed to refer to them or there's um, some barriers that get in the way. So it's that ability to independently assess a client, determine their needs, and make sure that those needs are being met. This is a very general question, but there's always been psychologists inside the world of mental health care. Mm-hmm. But the, the pandemic has been just a different kindle of fish, nothing that anyone has really experienced. I suppose if you're old enough to have been alive during the Spanish flu, you will have some <laughs> recollection. But let's be realistic, you know, the world has changed dramatically. Yeah. How has Not only how that's impacted uh, health care professionals or mental health care professionals or uh, psychologists specifically, but has your profession had to step back and think Think about the larger impacts of the pandemic, maybe shift how psychology is uh, practiced. Oh, there's no question. And I mean, there have been some positives that have come out of the pandemic. If you'd asked me three and a bit years ago what the heck a Zoom was, um, I wouldn't have had the foggiest clue. Um, So things like um, being able to offer uh, more flexibility to be able to cover greater geographic regions through things like uh, uh, telemedicine has made an enormous difference. Uh, We've had a lot of people studying the impact of various aspects of the pandemic um, from certainly we've seen increases in anxiety and depression. We've seen an impact on kids in their schooling. We've seen increases in eating disorders, um, but also kind of bigger picture things looking at, you know, the importance of social connections and socialization and what does the workplace look like and what are the aspects that are important to, to uh, workers uh, for those in our industry who study what's called industrial Industrial organizational psychology, understanding all of those bits of society has been a huge um, impact on psychology. And I'm hoping, you know, that we've been able to rise to the occasion, even things on a bigger level, looking at behavioral change. How do you convince the population to engage in vaccination? How do you convince the population to engage in masking? Um, How do you reduce some of the anxieties and fears around that? Those are all things that psychology has really kind of had to take the lead on in many ways over the last couple of years. You know, we talk a lot about uh, primary care teams and collaborative care clinics mm-hmm. and all the rest. Do psychologists work in the interdisciplinary world or do they standalones? Well, they do exist in interdisciplinary world. Um, certainly, we have advocated uh, a number of times over the years to be included in things like those inter- interdisciplinary primary health care teams. Ontario's been doing that for a number of years, and that's actually one of the most sought-out public sector psychology positions in the province. It's well-paid, it's well Compensated. It's very collaborative. I know BC has been making some efforts in that area. Um, and that's certainly one of the areas that we've been talking about, because if you can get in at the primary care level, you're often able to do a lot more preventative work, or sometimes it's short-term interventions as things are emerging, um, which then can prevent some of the longer-term issues. So we've certainly advocated uh, to have psychologists on each of those um, integrated teams. Of course, if you see a psychologist, in the public sector, there's no cost out of pocket. In the private sector, is there 
Do people have insurance to see psychologists, or is it all a cash transaction? Uh, some people do, and fortunately, we have seen we have seen some employers really, especially with the pandemic, um, appreciate that their the mental health needs of their uh, employees are incredibly important. So we've seen them increase the amount of coverage that they provide in terms of psychological services for their employers. Not everybody has, um, so there are some people who actually have decent coverage that provide adequate care and that takes some of the burden off of the uh, public system um, and I think it has always come down to there are some issues in some cases and some situations that are really well suited um, for short-term uh, private practice and there are others that really need the longer term the multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary tra- uh, teams that can be accessed through the uh, public system. Do I need a doctor's referral to see a psychologist? Uh, you don't uh, some insurance plans still required, although many of them have removed that um, requirement. Uh, really appreciate your time. Anything else you'd like to offer this morning, Dr. Hubbard? Uh, just that we're continuing to you know, m- uh, make some gains. We've seen some progress with the government initiatives, and we're very appreciative of those. But we know that there's still a long way to go, and we're also highlighting uh, the need for additional coverage for our own public sector psychologists to be able to take care of their own mental health. I appreciate your time as usual. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Dr. Janine Hubbard. She's the president of the Association of Psychologists, Newfoundland and Labrador. Dave, are you able? Okay, there we go. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? That's kind. How about you? Good, thanks. I want to talk about some politics south of the border, oh, down in uh, the great state of Florida. Okay. Yeah, Governor DeSantis last week uh, signed uh, two pieces of legislation into law in that state, and it's not getting much, very much uh, media coverage and the national media down in uh, in the U.S. Uh, one is um, uh, lowering the uh, threshold for uh, in capital murder cases to uh, sentence somebody to death who's convicted of, of murder. Uh, they changed the law there last week to, uh, it was, uh, the jury had to be unanimous, all 12 jurors had to vote to uh, execute somebody who was convicted at a trial of capital murder. But uh, he just changed the law down there to require eight out of 12. Which seems jurors. completely unreal to me. Uh, uh, you know, I, I tried, I try to stay abreast of what's happening, but American politics is just madness and maddening. So that particular move, I'm not even sure that's going to pass the constitutional test. I mean, it's fine for it to be passed at the state level. Then the other one, I think, is something to do with uh, sexual assault of a child under the age of 12 is now a, de- a capital case as well? Yes. Okay. And uh, the latter case uh, has already been decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2008 in uh, Kennedy versus Louisiana. U.S. Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision uh, at that time, said that uh, capital punishment for uh, for rape was uh, unconstitutional, violated uh, the prohibitions against uh, cruel and unusual punishment as set out in the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Uh, they said further that it was uh, disproportionate. Uh, capital punishment was disproportionate to that crime in particular. 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to speak to whether or not that should be the case. But inside of the conversation of capital punishment, in some states, it's super popular. That's it, and the political consensus is available for these types of things to be in place. But we also know, like people want their pound of flesh, right? If you take a life, people think that yours should be taken as a result. That does absolutely open the door for people to be executed who are innocent of the crime. But also, people talk about cost. You know, well, we only have to incarcerate you for X number of years, and then as opposed to what it costs in huge six figures to uh, incarcerate someone uh, annually, and they think, well, that gets reduced if you're on a on death row, when in fact it's been proven time and time again, it costs more to have someone on death row than it does someone serving a life sentence, and that's over the average of uh, 35 or 40 years. I can't remember the exact t- term there, but so it's it's potentially going to execute innocent people, and it costs more anyway. Yeah, it does, and uh, not only just uh, in housing them, but in their legal. Uh, That's right, stuff. in full. It's yeah. Mand- yeah, it's mandatory that the, somebody who's sentenced to death in many of these states, uh, it's mandatory that they have to have an appeal. And it's mandatory that uh, if they lose the appeal, that it has to go all the way up to the state appellate court and then, you know, try to jump into the uh, the federal uh, appeal system, uh, potentially to go all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But I find the, the, the logic of defenses requiring 8 out of 12 jurors instead of 12 out of 12 to be rather troubling. And he says, um, you know, why should uh, why should one juror, uh, you know, you have 11 out of 12 uh, uh, saying, yes, execute the person, and then one, one of those 12 says no. And he says, well, why should one juror hold up the other 11? You know, so he's knocked it down to eight. So why should three jurors or two jurors hold up the other 10 or nine, you know? Like, I, I don't get that logic. You need 12 out of 12 to find somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt to convict somebody and put them in prison for the rest of their life. But you only need 8 out of 12 to kill the person. Yeah, it's bizarre. There's, I think, 20... There's 20-odd, maybe 25 states that still have the death penalty on the books. And there are other states that don't require unanimous consent amongst all 12 jurors. I can't remember what they are, but I think the lowest is 10. Uh, that might yeah. be in Missouri or Alabama or somewhere. And, yeah, uh, Alabama. And then there's one state that actually a judge can make a decision based on how divided a jury is as to whether or not the capital case will follow through and an execution will take place. I can't remember that state either. But anyway, it's a strange old world south of the border as entertaining as it is, it's also quite disheartening maybe sometimes listening to some of these stories. Not to say that Canada's perfect because it's the furthest thing from, but I think we should thank our lucky stars and be very mindful of not allowing more and more of that type of discourse to be part of ours anyway. Yeah, it raises the question that he's he's passed a law down in, in, uh, in Florida now with regard to uh, capital punishment for child rape that he knows the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled on as unconstitutional. So the question begs to be asked is why is he passing that law to the state legislature now? Because it is going, he knows it's going to be challenged all the way up, up to the U.S. Supreme Court again. So is he hoping that the U.S. Supreme Court this time around will do a Roe versus Wade, uh, you know, crashing over of a precedent and set a new precedent and uh, strike down this 2008 decision and, and put in a, a new decision now? That uh, capital punishment for child rape is the law of the land in the United States. Is that what he's hoping for? I have no earthly idea what he's hoping for. You know. Anyway, Colin, and, uh, I appreciate the time this morning. Anything else before we say goodbye? You know, it's it's a state that uh, has one of the highest rates of wrongful convictions for capital murder. Uh, hundreds of people uh, have been exonerated through, through DNA and and other uh, evidence post trial, post conviction. 
And what you want to do now is expand the uh, criteria and the number of offences eligible for capital punishment. That sounds like very sound public policy, right? Not quite. Thanks for the time this morning. Cheers. Take care, Colin. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean... The discussion, I don't think there's ever going to be a day or a time where we see any resumption of capital punishment in Canada, but in the States, very much like most of their societal issues, there's very little middle ground, there's very little conversation, people are all in, all out, that's it, no conversation is available, period. So anyway, some of the conversations that you see and some of the issues that are being broached very contentiously and emotionally in the United States, look, people say, well, why do you even care what goes on in the States? Well, I, th- I think there's a distinct reaction in Canada to what you see and hear in the States? I mean, given the advent of 24-hour cable news, and a lot of people do watch a lot of cable news, I've really weaned myself off it as much as possible because it's just so mind-boggling and sometimes mind-bogglingly stupid. So it does make its way over our border, and it makes its way into our psyche. It makes us its way into how we talk about politics in this country. Uh, Brian's making an interesting observation. I think he's bang on here on my Twitter feed in this regard to daycare. He says, one problem with increasing daycare space is simply the actual bricks and mortars required. He says, do you need a new building? Not cheap to build. Interest rates are high. Materials and labor. Everything that is involved is driving up the cost. So for new operators to even want to come on stream comes with a significant amount of upfront investment. And cost recovery on the, in that model is probably not anywhere where it needs to be to see new entrants into it. All right, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Yeah. Um, anyway, <clears throat> I was calling about... Um Somebody gave me something they picked up in one of the hospitals there recently here, and it's about the, uh, what is it, what is the healthy food policy for retail? Apparently, over three years or something like that, uh, Eastern Health is going to require people to, uh, or the private bus- uh, food businesses in the hospital, to uh, gradually, uh, uh, I don't know about going veggie, but certainly reduce a lot of, uh, you know, the, the food that, uh, in one way I think it's good, but in another way, the problem she had was, it's taken away their choice. She doesn't like that. Apparently, they're going to get rid of the vending machines eventually and only put healthy choices in them like uh, coffee, tea, or water. And uh, I'm not sure what else. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, this is the thing. uh, She feels they're taking away their choice. You know, that should be your choice to choose that food or not, especially since, you know, uh, middle-aged Newfoundlanders and up, you know, we're we're sort of, you know, we're used to eating a certain way. It's not always good for us, but that's what we enjoy and some do live a long time regardless of that and some don't you know so what do you think about that or what uh, may get some comment on it sure well i think in a public setting i think the responsibility for government to offer more and more healthy options just makes sense i mean you talk about it in a healthcare setting so how many people in the province have a direct interaction with the system based on their physical activity and or their diet or a combination of both so well, like inside I of schools there's actually yeah. a, man- a mandate to take out what we call the so-called unhealthy options and simply have all healthy options most of these yeah. decisions based on what's in a hospital or in a long-term care facility or in a school is based right. on canada's food guide Oh, I know that. They say that on the two brochures here, on the, the one oh, okay. these brochures, yeah. That's where it comes from, yeah, it's based on that. But, uh, yeah, Canada's Food Guide, yeah. This policy is guided by Canada's Food Guide to promote health, meet nutrition, nutrient needs, and reduce the risk of nutri- nutrition-related chronic diseases, support a healthy food environment, whatever. But anyway, that's just government talk, of course, bureaucratic talk. But, uh, yeah, but like I say, uh, you know, uh, like, for instance, in, remember in the Avalon Mall a few years ago, they... Uh, 
they kind of banned or got rid of the uh, the Nufi food uh, outlet there and uh, replaced it with Chinese or something like that. You know what I mean? But was that a business decision made by one entity or another, like either by yeah. Crombie that runs the mall or the people that own the restaurant? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's private. I know that was private, and they had the right to do that. But uh, you know, but I don't what know. what happened there? I'm wondering. Do you know? So was yeah. it the mall said you have to leave, or would the business uh, simply said well, they're done the with mall, the mall? The mall, I think the mall said that it uh, the company was running the mall or whoever they are. Uh, they uh, oh, I think Crombie, they said, yeah. yeah, Crombie. They said that. Uh, well, you know, it's just not. Um, I don't know. It's just not in 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 line with uh, with uh, the the healthier move today to toward the different eating or whatever, you know what I mean? It's, okay. Because uh, so. you can still get lots of stuff that I think people will consider not to be the healthiest oh, yeah, options I, I know, at the mall. I know that, yeah. Yeah, your fried chicken, your this and that. and your All kinds of fast food, stuff yeah. Sugar stuff and all that, right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I just wonder what, uh, you know, uh, what people think about it. Uh, I more or less agree with it myself, but she didn't. Uh, she said, well, where's your choice, you know? You either take. It's one thing she said they should have both there and let you make the choice of which one you want. Well, you know, I suppose, but... Uh, you know. I think in a government setting, it's probably incumbent on government to... Uh, Set the example. Yeah, I think so. Now, yeah. they, I don't want them to dictate what I can buy at the grocery store and eat in my own home, right. but I think when you go to a government facility, yeah. they probably should indeed be uh, have healthy options available and maybe reduce the amount of options that yeah, would here, be considered here. unhealthy. But here's something she pointed out, which sure. makes some sense. She pointed out, what about the patient that's in there long term and uh, is not able to run down to the cafeteria and has no family or no one to visit him, no one to help him or her, and you know they're kind of stuck with uh, food they can't eat or don't like and uh, won't eat, and then the next thing they'll just starve to death. So, you know, that's a point, you know. Yeah, and we don't have choice. Like, like if you're an admitted patient and cannot get out of the bunk and go down to the cafeteria, or what have you, you don't have a choice. You get what you get. You might have options presented to you that you pick A or B, but there's not a big a menu. Th- but do you think uh, that uh, you know they should uh, have the food that makes them happy in their last uh, little while, or do you think that you know serving them a vegetarian is going to make them live longer and better uh, when they're already dying? You know what I mean? That yeah, I don't think there's a strict, simply just vegetarian options available. But that's a curious yeah. point because remember, it's not that long ago that yeah. the government was taken to task for some of the meals they were serving, particularly in long-term care. One right. example was was SpaghettiOs. So yeah. people were saying, my God, how can we be serving our seniors SpaghettiOs? Yeah. Like, what is, can we give them a healthier option? But of course, right. then the government's reaction was, is that we give them the offer, the opportunity to have some comfort food, things they're used to, things they like. I mean, SpaghettiOs aren't unhealthy. People thought, well, can we not give them something with more substance or substance yeah. or sustenance? Yeah, there's nothing. Well, it's only for basically pasta. What it is is flour is it? And, and, and tomato sauce. That's it. There's nothing else in it. You can't live on that. It's an, and I like it once in a while too, but I wouldn't want to try to live on it. But you know, but then if that's what somebody wanted, fine. But uh, I'm sure they don't want it every day. You know. Understood, Joe. I'm glad you made time for the show. Okay. Anyway, that's it. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, take, take care. Take Bye. care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, interesting stuff. You know, which this is not exactly what Jim was talking about, but when we look at issues regarding food in the country, and Canada's food guide is exactly that. It's a guide, right? Now, people will question what's included on it and fair ball. But something regarding food and food wastage that simply does not get enough attention. The amount of food Canadians waste is unbelievable. 
Uh, some people are better at it than others. I'm a leftover hawk. I'm the garbage can in the house. I try not to throw anything away. But then it gets extended beyond that to best before dates. And you know what? You know full well there's a lot of food that gets thrown out simply because the best before date has arrived. Then that's a pretty tricky piece of business inside the world of food, the food industry. Because unless, you know, some dairy products, I am a little bit attentive to the expiry date, or pardon me, the best before date when it comes to dairy products because of the obvious reasons. But so many other things in our house, in our fridge and in our cupboards, the best before date is exactly that. It doesn't mean that it has expired and it doesn't mean that it's no longer healthy for you. It doesn't mean it's going to make you sick. It simply means that there might be some uh, reduction in the nutritious value and maybe some issues regarding taste and quality. But it certainly can be eaten. And so, but uh, Lots of Canadians that best before date, that drives their decision as to whether or not that's going to remain in the fridge, remain in the cupboard, or go directly into the garbage, consequently into the landfill. So you want to bring that forward, we can do it. There's also a lot to be understood about the designations on the labels, right? Labels, you have to bring a microscope in large part to read a label on a food product in the grocery store. Some products do a big job of it because they're trying to promote whether it be sugar content, salt content, fat content, what have you. But... When we saw the move for all, so many products to move from their full bore, their, uh, their leaded version, into their unleaded or light or diet, we then came to understand years down the road, as more and more careful examination was done of these products, that the light label or the diet label was pretty much just a little bit of smoke and mirrors. It wasn't that much more light. It wasn't that much more diet. It was simply given a different look on the packaging, the tag of diet or light, and people who were food conscientious about what they take in, they were just going to it in droves and really not seeing much in the way big health advantages associated with it. So those couple of stories or those couple of issues surrounding food, accessibility and quality and food wastage, we could talk about that or anything else under the sun when we come back from this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I've been told uh, via email that I completely misrepresented a topic off the top of the program today, and that was regarding the Volkswagen electric battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. It'll be the first one from that company anywhere in North America. So the emailer to- tells me that what's going on here is not only the money from the federal government, but there's also $500 million from the province, which is true. But the $13 billion, this person is saying that the federal government simply wrote them a check for all intents and purposes for $13 billion. But that's not how any report on that story has looked to me. And I tried to read three or four to make sure that I was getting the full picture here and the full scope or the full implication of this particular move by the federal government. So what it is, is Volkswagen builds the plant for their own $7 billion. And you can talk about whether or not this this makes any sense, whether or not this is straight up corporate welfare, or whether or not we're on the right track. That's completely up to you and your opinion and welcome on that front. But the $13 billion is associated with tax credits or tax subsidies. So when production begins, there will be targets that have to be met to qualify for these tax subsidies. So it is indeed $13 billion that will not be coming in the door, but it's not straight up $13 billion going out the door, cash on the barrel head for all intents and purposes. It's a tax subsidy issue. Now, it really does add up to huge amount of money if you break it down for how much for these, say, 3,000 direct jobs that are said to be created in this unbelievably massive complex. So 
if the government of Canada, were we come down on having to be a part of this conversation, I don't know the right or the wrong. I do know that the Americans are going to go a long way to driving how this government, whether it be liberals or conservatives or anyone else, whoever holds power, given the way that the Americans have set up their incentives for these types of industries, is going to make it extremely difficult and extremely competitive if we want to see some of that activity for an investment in this country versus all the states are all in Mexico. And that's based on American legislation and the program that they refer to as the Inflation Reduction Act. So what do you think the right play is on this front? The government may indeed, and this is sort of the go-to modus operandi of government period, is an exaggeration of the benefit. So it's easy enough to say it's going to generate $200 billion in economic activity over the coming decades. Exactly how they've come to that assertion or that tally your your guess is as good as mine but no it isn't 13 billion dollars here you go it's based on targets that need to be hit before the money flows there was also an email that says well boy you know what happens if this gets shut down in seven ten years based on whatever they've gotten a better deal somewhere else in the world whether it be in north america or elsewhere well i suppose the issue there is if it shuts down then no more targets will be hit it's impossible to hit a target if you're not open and in operation so that would mean that the tax subsidies subsidies also stop at that moment in time now the future inside that industry is only going to see growth i mean we can just look around and see what's happening in the world to know that that will indeed be the case but where we fall into supply chain control whether it be through government initiatives or what have you that's i think that's the biggest question here it certainly seems to be where this government and whoever wins the next federal election whether it be the polyev led conservatives and or whoever's at the helm of the federal liberals is we are finding ourselves in an extremely competitive landscape now regarding this type of industry and I think very much like what's going on simply if you talk about the country, not influence outside our, our borders necessarily, is we have got to figure out a way, and this is where some federal guidance is required, because all of the clamoring by the various health ministers across the country about increasing the health care transfer dollar, and some of that happened. Now, the new money is not as big as the federal government wants you to believe because they use the number of $196 billion over 10 years. There's already going to be some of that transfer money, $46 billion of which is new money. So how it's being spent, if, it, if I read the tea leaves correctly and look at the news stories right across Canada, is we find ourselves in bidding wars for healthcare workers. So that is the furthest thing from our collective best interest as a country. The provinces with the deepest pockets, who maybe create an incentive package first, will be able to fill some of the shortcomings, some of the gaps in the offering inside the system for one healthcare professional or another. There's a big suite of incentives that we've talked about and that you've seen and read about here in this province, but if it simply results in a bidding war, then we don't necessarily improve the system. Then we have an annual operational cost that's increased based solely on salaries and remuneration packages, but that doesn't make healthcare better. So people use the catchy and the flashy words of reimagining the system and what have you, and that's not exactly a bad word to use when we talk about healthcare, because the system was created decades ago to reflect the realities of life on the ground decades ago. So if we don't modernize and change the way the system works and how it's delivered, then spinning our wheels with something that is not necessarily working, don't take my word for it, just look at your, inside your own family or social circles. Look at the stories we see about wait times. Look at the stories we see about surgical backlogs, right? 
Look what we see in long-term care facilities and how many beds are unoccupied simply because of staffing shortages. So I know there's not just one simple way to cure all our ills inside of healthcare. But we are just going to see one province bidding against another. We've already seen the province of Nova Scotia make their way here. And before job offers were put forward to, I believe it was uh, radiation therapists, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that they were given a 20% increase and some assistance in moving to Nova Scotia. Do you think some of those folks took that offer? You know full well they did. So anyway, there's a lot to those conversations. But let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. The topic is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go uh, to line number one. Good morning, Eliza. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you this morning? Best kind. How about you? Pretty good. I'm a little bit nervous this morning. Okay. Uh, I want to send out uh, not a bouquet of flowers, but a bouquet of respect to two people this morning. Okay. And that is uh, Mr. David Diamond for getting on the uh, open line uh, Friday to say that the doctor contracts for Bonavista are just verbal and not signed contracts at all. And I want to send out a bouquet of respect to Debbie Walsh, who is our new... uh, new chief operating officer for our area now and because she was the one who came so forward when the questions when the question was put to her are there any contracts signed or not and she said in words to this effect uh if you want it in black and white no there's not and you know something It takes a lot of courage to come right out with the truth, but we can't help but wonder, Patty, why did the minister announce that there were contracts signed, or at least one and one verbal, and uh, our mayor to say there were multiple contracts signed? That kind of makes your head spin. Yeah, I don't know if that's just based on straight up misinformation or disinformation or maybe a communication breakdown, but I thought Diamond was really quite clear on it. Uh, well, and so he, but he also goes on to say he's quite encouraged. He thinks that both of these deals will, uh, will close. He oh, didn't I get into the nitty gritty. I believe that too. But you know what? The misinformation that was out there, uh, like where does it come from? The last time I was on, I was talking about, like, we like to get to the, we like facts. And I'd like to know how that misinformation got out there, because I'm going to tell you, we don't want to send any questions to whoever told uh, the minister or whoever told the mayor, because we know we can't trust to it if it's facts or if it's, I don't know what it would be. I mean, it's not difficult to know whether a contract is signed or not. That's a simple question. Is the contract signed or is it not? Yes or no. But to, like all this misinformation that was out there, uh, that needs to be gotten to the bottom of as well because there's too much misinformation. And sometimes I can't help but wonder if some of those things that are out there are out there on purpose. 
Well, I don't know. And plus, it'd be helpful to know where the person, and in this case, the mayor, got the information. Because he could be just uh, echoing what someone told him, whether it be at the health authority or who knows who was exactly. responsible and for it. I don't know. to get to the bottom of. Who told them? And who told the minister? Because we know misinformation was told to ministers over the years. Um, and it's not good. It's, it's not good. And if it's deliberate, that's worse. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's good when we get to the source, you know, like, for instance, when we had uh, David Diamondon, who is now, of course, the CEO of the One Health Authority. Yes. Uh, I'm not even entirely sure if I can remember exactly what we're calling it these days. But he was pretty uh, clear. You know, health Authority, I think. Yeah, okay. And he says, you know, it's some of these things will simply take time, whether it be, like, we don't even know where the doctors are coming from. There was some reference to a doctor from Ireland, which comes with some complications for getting a license in place, what have you, but... Uh, he seemed quite optimistic that this will indeed happen, those oh, two yeah. doctors for Bonavista. So until it's a done deal, I guess we'll all, we can all be optimistic or hopeful all we want, but until there's signatures on paper and doctors practicing in the community, I guess we'll all find out at the same time. Exactly, exactly. And you know what? We're going to, in the pursuit of the truth and facts, we're going to continue. And because that happened, it makes us more determined. Yeah, and we'll stay on top of it, you know, and I guess the, the next questions will be, you know, how and why they decided to come here. Was the recruitment effort in Ireland? Because we didn't even set any, st- any goals that we were trying to hit, whether it be nurses in India, doctors in Ireland, or anywhere else across the country. It's fine to have these things in practice and in play, but unless we measure how what constitutes success, then we're just hoping for the best, when I think that's probably a really a much better way to approach these things. Let's just say we, go, we have 750 vacancies in registered nursing in the province, and we make our way to India and actively recruit uh, nurses there, what's the hope? Is it 100? Is it 50? Is it 200? And if we don't hit it, then let's just assess why we did it, how we did it, and whether or not it can be rejigged to have a better outcome. Because if you don't set goals, then you're just hoping for the best. That's all. But anyway, we'll get there slowly but surely. Let's hope so. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. All the best. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Dave, you're still on the in, ins and outs for me. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Kevin, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for uh, taking my call. Pleasure. I, I'm calling about a subject that's sort of dear to my heart. Uh, it's called uh, Registered Retirement Income Funds and their minimum payments. You know, when, when we reach, as I did, 71 years old, I have to take a minimum risk uh, in times of market volatility and things like that. Um, in addition, if I'm still working when I'm past 71, I build up various peak or registered retirement saving plan contribution room. Right. But because I'm 71 year old, I'm not allowed to deduct my RSP. And, you know, I think or I feel it's discriminatory on age. Simply because there's a, an age set for these types of uh, deductions? Yes. Okay. Simply because an age set. So, it, it, like, like we're trying to encourage doctors and everything else to stay working past the age of 71 because our healthcare system needs it. Yet these doctors will build up RSP room, as an example, and they cannot deduct 
interested because they're over 71. It's, it's in my opinion, it's a, it's a discriminatory thing on age. Kevin, and if I you say it's an issue close to your heart, then obviously you'll know more about it than I do. There are some complicated things associated with uh, deductions and income withdrawn from your RRIF. For instance, if you use it for security for a loan, it has an implication on the withdrawal. If you sold it for fair market value or less, it has a complication associated with how much you can withdraw. So help me understand some of the different moving parts about how they deduce, not just based on age, how they deduce what the withdrawals can be or amounts that you can transfer from. Okay. So basically, if you're 71 years old, uh, the, the minimum withdrawal with for risk is close to around 5% a year. Uh, and that's, that's minimum. That's like if you, if you take all the stuff that you introduce, the, uh, you know, the, the leverage loans and all that stuff, that, that has uh, basically no bearing on on that minimum payment that has to come out anyway if i'm making if i'm working and making a hundred thousand dollars a year i have to take a minimum from my risk now the government in their wisdom i can understand where they're coming from they want to get the taxes as uh, as we withdraw but you know if i let's say i didn't withdraw let's say i stayed into the plan until i'm 80 years old before i start to withdraw then and i happen to die between 71 and 80 years old the government still is going to get their tax because my when it comes to my estate or my beneficiaries unless they're their minor children or or disabled children that i'm responsible for it's going to be taxed in in my name or in my estate name. So the government is not losing any money. Is there a tax implication if you transfer money between the two? Uh, no, you can transfer from a registered retirement plan to a registered risk plan, and there's no tax complications. But anything outside of that, it's always a tax complication. Okay. So your major concern is not necessarily those tax implications and transfer issues. It's simply about the age that's being put forward that you refer to as discriminatory. Yes, I do. And in, 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 in essence, it's not just the minimum risk payment that's discriminatory. Like that, that's already being placed in place. And they need to look at, at, at that as, as, you know, they're talking about sustaining income into retirement as, as we grow older and our lifespan is a bit longer and things like that. So they've, they've done a few things like a year ago. They reduced the minimum payment like that. They talked about insured annuities at age 85 and so you could defer a portion of your RIF until you're 84 and then take a, 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 an annuity, a life annuity for that, that amount. So all these things like are helping, but my biggest thing is that you should not, in my opinion, have to do this minimum payment unless you're you need it, unless you need it for income. Okay, so the the adjustment to come up with what the minimum would be is based on age and it's assessed every single year, not just when we talk about 65 versus 71, right? 
No, it's based on age, and every year this minimum goes up. So let's say, and I'm only using an example because I don't know the exact figures, but let's say it's 4.8% at age 71. Then at age 73, it could be 5.2%. And as we get older and older, that percentage of minimum withdrawal has to come out. And that increases every year with age. I don't know if the right word is finagle, but can you choose or elect to have the minimum uh, evaluated based on the age of your partner or your spouse? You can, yes, you can. But in, in, in most cases, you know, you're, you're talking maybe two years. Like, and, and, and you can, for instance, if your partner is 69 years old and you're 71, you can do a spousal RSP and use the deduction there. But once the two couples, or, or as in my case, a widower, uh, once I get 71, then I have to take my minimum payment. If I, if I continue to work past 71, and I, I, I make $50,000 a year in, a, in my own business, then I build up RSP contribution room, but I have no way in this world of using it. In my opinion, that's discriminatory. Understood. Here's the point made by a fellow who's a financial advisor. who says, if a Canadian resident is over 71, they cannot hold or open an RRSP account, therefore cannot make contributions and get the deduction against their income taxes, just to put that into the mix. That is absolutely correct. That's my point. Why can't I? Like, why, if I'm working, why can't I do that? It's a, uh, an absolute fair question. Uh, you know, like many things that come to light here on the program and people try to fill in some of the, the blanks where I don't have the answers, but I can certainly ask the questions. So I know who to go to uh, insofar as the government representative is to talk about this particular issue, and I'm happy to follow up on your behalf and let's see if we can get some answers or clarification or justification, I suppose is the best way to put it, on this uh, discriminatory age that's been set. Yes, I would appreciate that, and thank you for your uh, your input into this because uh, it needs to be explored more than I can do as a as just bringing it forward. But it needs to be explored. Now, I've I've written to like the members and things like that, but no one responds to you. You know, you just they they say okay, you're getting old. Eventually, you won't be around, so this issue will die. But it's not right. I appreciate you making time for this and for putting this on my uh, front burner. I'll do the, the follow-up as best I can. Thank you, Patty. Have a nice day. The very same to you, Kevin. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's good on. That's an interesting topic. You know, there's as much as we try to stay abreast of what's happening, there's so many other things going on in your own world, your own private circumstances. So when you think that there's something that maybe should get some attention, conversation, and maybe I can set up a guest to speak to your concerns, just like Kevin did this morning, that's something that really helps the program out. And on a selfish note, it really helps me out because as much as I look around and scan the world of news to try to be uh, informed and try 
trying to bring some of these topics to the table. Your input is a big part of what drives the show. So during this uh, upcoming break, take the opportunity to pick up the phone and give us a shout. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, it's 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. A couple of stories that are out there in the media today regarding health care. And, of course, health care is a never-ending conversation. And this is about nurse practitioners. So we know the ability for a nurse practitioner to set up his or her own private clinic. The problem for many is, yes, it could indeed present a different or another option for if and when you need care and you don't have a family doctor, you haven't been brought into one of these collaborative care clinics and you're still waiting on the Patient Connect roster. The problem for many is that they can't afford it because it's not covered by MCP, and nor will it be if you listen to the Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne. He's saying at this point they are not considering allowing these private clinics to build the government. But if you see a nurse practitioner in a hospital setting, for instance, it comes with no cost out of pocket. We all know, and we talk about healthcare as being free when there's no such thing as free, but there is, I think, a question to be asked as to what's the rationale behind that? If we're trying to free up the overwhelming wait times or the issues regarding getting a family doctor or seeing a healthcare professional that could suit your needs, because not every issue or ailment requires an MD, nurse practitioners, licensed practical nurses are extremely important cog in the healthcare delivery system. So I'm not really sure what the rationale is. It's not have that also covered. You know, I suppose what they're trying to dissuade healthcare professionals from doing is leaving the public sector to go into private practice, but we can't dictate where people work. We can't dictate what they do. So it's one thing to put out your shingle and offer nurse practitioner services, quite another for many people in the province, because it might not be a huge burden for some to come up with $30 or $40 or $50, but for others, it absolutely is a hurdle. So I'm supposing, if you read between the lines, it's simply to try to discourage nurse practitioners for taking it upon themselves to open up a private clinic. You know, I think similar conversations inside the world of registered nurses because, you know, just put yourself in the shoes of a registered nurse today. You're working for the public sector. Whether you be on the casual list or, I guess, more importantly, if you're on the permanent full-time list and you're working alongside a nurse that's working for a private agency and they're working less and making more. So when you factor in just how stressed out many healthcare professionals seem to be and the workload they're experiencing, then having to operate along someone with the exact same credentials you have, the exact same background as a registered nurse, but because they work for a private agency, their rate of pay is vastly different, and sometimes it might be as much as two or three times more than you're making. Of course, that adds nothing but anxiety or maybe even for some anger to the situation. I made this comment on it, and it drew the ire of many. As I said, if you're a registered nurse and you were getting subsidized education, which you were, and then you were working in the public sector, but you've decided, and no one can keep you from doing anything that you want to do in this world. If you want to move to a different job, that's, that's your own uh, decision to make. But like, very much like this job, if I quit today, my contract says I can't go work in a comparable outlet. I can't be working in the media for 12 months. So that's a non-compete, and I, I agreed to it, and I signed the contract. So when we hire people to work in the public offering, especially in healthcare, maybe that's not a terrible idea. So that makes the decision to leave working, for instance, at Ford North B at the Health Sciences to move off to a private agency not quite as attractive. 
because you wouldn't be able to do anything inside your healthcare field for, let's say, 12 months, very much like what my contract says. And the person that reacted, or I guess the people that reacted really quite unkind, were saying, you know, how dare you suggest that there should be anything that keeps me from working for who I want, when I want. But the problem is, is that it hurts the public system, of which I'm a contributor to. So I don't begrudge you working for more money and having to put in less time. Good for you. I mean, I'd take the option if it was available to me in a heartbeat. But if it just simply puts more and more uh, strain on the public system, then once again, as a taxpaying citizen, I'm much more concerned with the public system, its efficiencies, and its resourcing and staffing than I would be for private offering. Now, I think the conversation gets a little bit further down the road when we talk about what we see changing inside healthcare is more and more expansion of the private sector. Now, there's already been private sector offerings inside of healthcare for a long time. Point to wherever you like. Dentals, or dentists, pardon me. So, but now what we see, and you look at some clinics in different parts of the country, and we see a huge uptick on the amount of uh, people who are willing to pay out of pocket to get out of the public queue, bring their wait time way down, whether it be things like uh, hip and knee replacements. There is one clinic, I think it's called the Duval Clinic in Montreal, that has seen a surge, and we're talking like 50% year over year of more people coming in the door. Again, if you have the twenty-five dollars or $27,000 to pay for a, nip, a hip or a knee replacement out of pocket, that's great for you. But when we see that if that becomes more and more of the go-to opportunity for nurses and other staff and doctors and surgeons to move off into that setting, that has a huge complication for the public. It really does. And even if we see more and more, even private offers, regardless if they're surgical or not, is then all of a sudden the public sector is left with the most complicated cases. Right? With everyone who doesn't have cash to pay out of pocket. I hear patients say, well, I didn't jump the queue. I got out of the queue. And so consequently, the person behind me just moved up one rung on the ladder, which is absolutely true. But we do indeed have a point where that's only going to bring more harm to the public system than it does help to the majority of Canadians, which is, I think, what we have to do inside of healthcare. Because, yes, there is a private aspect to healthcare, and there long has been in this country. Let's take a break. When we come back, what are we talking about? Up to you. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Go back to the program. Well, we're just talking about nurse practitioners. And lo and behold, join us online. Number one is the president of the NL Nurse Practitioners Association. That's Margot Antle. Good morning, Margot. You're on the air. Good morning, Margot. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Excellent today. Thank you. How about you? the last couple of weeks have been really challenging for nurse practitioners so i'll be honest I've, I've had better days but better days are coming hopefully challenges such as well we as you know i mean we've chatted about this a little bit in the past you know we've really been been struggling to try and get nurse practitioners kind of fully integrated into the public system we have a number of nurse practitioners working you know will i say privately um charging patients for service and the government has just been really really resistant to getting those those providers sort of on stream um so that has been extremely challenging so the issue here about how nurse practitioners in a private setting quote-unquote private setting are being Mm -hmm. compensated what's the normal fee that's being charged right now a little bit um you know i don't have exact numbers on how many nurse practitioners are working privately right now in the province it's, i would estimate between about 20 and 30 
Um, and it varies. It will go from, say, $50 a visit to, I'd say, 75 to 100 depending on what it is. You know, oftentimes, in, they're private businesses, right? So they sort of charge what they what they deem appropriate. And lots of times, it'll be a certain rate for the initial visit and then a certain rate for the follow-up. Um, but the difficulty is they could be either billing in CP or otherwise under the public system, whether that be a stipend from the government to attach a certain number of patients and give them primary health care or get funding from elsewhere. For example, in BC, they do um, funding coming from the Department of Health. They call it their Ministry of Health, but it's essentially the Department of Health. So there are ways, you know, to, to bring these people aboard into a public system that are just not being entertained right now. So what are we suggesting? Is it as simple as nurse practitioners in their own private clinic bill MCP directly, or is there more to more nuance to it? Well, I think there's definitely more nuance to it. I think it can certainly be looked at as simply as that. You know, in, in a short-term solution, we know MCP is not the ideal. It's a bit of an antiquated system that doesn't really service patients or providers that well, really. Um, but it is what we have. And we know that we're sort of trying to move away from that, but that takes a long time, right? Rome wasn't built in a day, as they say. So in the short term, that would absolutely be a way to very quickly bring these nurse practitioners kind of into a public setting. Um, but again, there's many more of those other complex, well, I say flexible funding options, like what they do in Nova Scotia, where they have um, a regional health authority employed nurse practitioner in sort of a traditional fee-for-service environment. They are still working. They're under the public purse, but they're in, it, in that environment, and patients don't have to pay. Is there an understanding of the rationale as to why government is unwilling to even entertain? And Minister Osborne says the government is not looking at this at all. For me, and you know obviously much more about it than I do, is it seems to be some of these decisions or the unwillingness to have further conversation is to keep as many nurse practitioners in the public sector uh, versus them entertaining the opportunity to move out on their own, which of course comes with more flexibility for hours worked and all these types of things and work-life balance. Is it as simple as that in your mind? I think that's some of it, um, you know, and certainly the discussions, you know, the NLNPA has had with the department, that's been the vibe, you know, that they want to keep nurse practitioners sort of within the regional health authority model. They're not really interested in going outside that. And I think some of it is, you know, for lack of a better word, control, right? When you've got a regional health authority as, as the overseer, they're the ones that determine the clinic hours, that determines where the clinic is, how the clinic operates. But, you know, I'll be frank, there's, there's a number of people who don't really want to work in that model. And right now, if you're a physician, you can choose to work within the regional health authority or not. If you're a pharmacist, you can choose to work within the regional health authority or not. If you're a physiotherapist, you can choose to work within the regional health authority or not. And nurse practitioners, frankly, it's discriminatory, Patty, because we are sort of put in the regional health authority with no other option. There's also, you know, a school of thought out there for so many people in the provinces. They want to see a doctor, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's something about going to see the doctor versus go see other trained medical professionals because maybe there's just simply a lack of understanding about what a nurse practitioner or a licensed practical nurse can actually do. So mm -hmm. paint us a picture of where your profession uh, fits into the healthcare system because you know as much as I do. When people think they need to see somebody, they want to see a doctor. Right. And, you know, I think certainly physicians have served us, you know, well thus far in our in our medical system. Right. And, and when we think about when we are sick or when we're unwell, we go to the doctor. Right. But it's like everything else. Systems modernize. Right. Once upon a time, that was kind of the person you saw when you were sick. But 
number one, systems have gotten much more kind of complex. Illnesses have gotten much more complex. And the best person to sort of meet the need of patients sometimes is not always a physician. It's not always a nurse practitioner. It might be a physiotherapist. It might be a social worker. It might be a counselor, you know, depending on what your needs are. So I agree there's definitely that philosophy of, well, I need a doctor. And what you what people need really is access to high quality primary health care, which can be provided by a physician or a nurse practitioner. So give us an example. So I think I need to see the doctor, but in essence, a nurse practitioner might be exactly who I need, and I needn't be waiting in the emergency room. I needn't be uh, thinking that I simply need to see a doctor. Give us a few examples that people can latch on to. So as an example, so say I'm a 50-year-old lady, and I, it's time now for me to start getting my breast screening done for breast cancer. Um, that's not something you have to see a physician for. You can certainly see a nurse practitioner for that. And I would hope that whatever provider you see, when you go in for those, say, we call it health promotion visits, where they're saying, okay, I need my mammogram, but we're also asking about cervical screening. We're asking about bowel cancer screening. We're asking about your general health. We're asking about your mental health, your physical health. When we are getting diabetes screening, if we have diabetes, if we have high blood pressure, those are not always things you have to see a physician for. A nurse practitioner can can very, very well manage those conditions. And, you know, while we're talking, I've seen a bunch of emails. I'm trying to not pay attention to them, but it's so distracting to see them flying. A couple of people saying, uh, I deal with a private nurse practitioner in one part of the province or another. Love them. So, of course. you know, it can't be someone that you need to see versus all the other options that you think are the only ones available to you. What else do we need to know this morning about the nurse practitioners and some of the pressures they're feeling? Well, I think realistically, it's been it's been a hard couple of weeks for nurse practitioners because we've seen a lot of really great recruitment and retention strategies come out for physicians, for nurses, for licensed practical nurses, and now, of course, this this posting for a physician assistant in Buren. Um, and it's it's in one sense good to see some of these things coming and changing because we know we need that change in healthcare. But nurse practitioners feel extremely downtrodden. They feel discouraged. They feel frustrated because we've been here the whole time. We've worked through COVID. We're here. We're ready to work. We're ready to work to full scope and provide primary health care in particular. And it's just crickets from government, no matter what we say. We heard this business of physician assistance a few months ago, and within six months, it's come to fruition that there's a job posting. So it can be done. It can be done in short order just government is not interested in nurse practitioners right now. Inside of these interdisciplinary teams, whatever people want to call them, collaborative care clinics or what have you, are nurse practitioners part of that roster, those rosters? Yep, they sure are. Um, and, you know, that's one piece of the pie. And, I mean, certainly as, as government is moving forward with the family care teams provincially, nurse practitioners will certainly be a part of that. But, again, they are going to be regional health authority-based, or I guess we're one regional health authority now, but they're going to be RHA-based. And not everybody wants to work within that. And there's there's people that have these already set up clinics in parts of the province that they kind of want to continue in that model, but they need the funding. And, and frankly, Patty, I'm a bit surprised that patients have not kind of approached government themselves because we all pay taxes. There's no reason people should have to pay for their, their primary health care. People will pay. If you ask any nurse practitioner in private practice around the province, their wait list is two to three weeks. People are only happy to pay, but they shouldn't have to. 
you know, there is a larger private versus public conversation that every now and then rears its head. And, you know, some people are staunchly about universal health care. They unfortunately also call it free health care all the time. Right. But there's, <laughs> no, there's nothing free in this world, unfortunately. So. We've really got to have these high-level conversations because yeah. there's going to require some federal government guidance on this because they focus in on, for instance, healthcare transfer dollar and just try to have provinces earmark it for one area or another, digital records or long-term care or mental health care services. But what happens at that point is we all go back to our own corners as provincial yeah. ministers and provincial cabinets, and we don't necessarily uh, think outside of what can be done because now we're just competing with each other. There's you know some collaboration regarding versus accreditation and licenses for doctors to travel freely uh, mm-hmm. throughout Atlantic Canada. That's fine, but that's only one baby step into the direction where I think we need to go. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more, Patty. I appreciate your time this morning, Margot. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Margot Antle. She's the president of the NL Nurse Practitioners Association. And, you know, remarkably... And I do think there's maybe a bit of education for me and for many about who I really need to see. So I think that is the best of the concept that is collaborative care. If I present with one issue or another, I see the person I need to see. And if oftentimes that isn't an MD, that's good enough for me. If the person has the training, the experience, the credentials, and the license to see me for whatever ailment I'm dealing with, that's all I need. I don't need the comfort, for instance, to say I saw the doctor today. If I saw the nurse practitioner and got what I needed, perfect. And not surprisingly, a bunch of notes throughout that conversation flying in saying, my nurse practitioner is excellent. I love my nurse practitioner and on and on it goes, which I think is really quite encouraging. Let's take a break. When we come back, Gordon, you're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Gordon. You're on the air. Morning, sir. Morning, you. Yes. Um, uh, Pierre Polyev uh-huh. is saying that if he forms the next government, He's going to get rid of the carbon tax. That's what he says. You're right. So uh, my question is, why can't the liberals get rid of it, the carbon tax today? Well, they can if they wanted to. They can if they want to. So, well, let's why see. Why don't here. they do it? Well, <laughs> and, not, and certainly not to be saucy. They just don't want to. Um, they don't want to. No. I see. I find the carbon tax, look, it's it's low-hanging fruit for the opposition party. It's an easy one to go after, right? Because yeah. when you put the word tax on anything, if people hear I'm going to reduce a tax burden, many people will just say, well, I like that. Uh, it's important also to remember that in the last two federal elections, somewhere in the neighborhood of two-thirds of Canadian voters voted for a party that had a carbon tax as part of their party platform. So, And also add to the conversation, and this is where people don't want to hear it, but this is absolutely factual stuff, is that it's not that long ago that a price on pollution, our carbon tax, was the choice of the Conservatives. I mean, Stephen Harper was a carbon tax proponent, but since the Liberals put it in, now it's the dumbest thing of all time, which means to me that this is about the politics of the issue, not about the policy itself. Okay, sir. Um, I'm wondering, is he um, talking about actually getting rid of the carbon tax or just the name carbon and (laughs) some other name? I, well, I can't speak for him, but my understanding, based on what I've heard him say... Yeah, I've been uh, listening for that, and I've been waiting and waiting for seeing somebody come on the line and ask that question. 
but no one did. So I said, finally, I got the ass. I'm going to have to call open line and find out why you can do it and the Liberals can't. Well, I mean, it's based on who's uh, holding the seat of government. And, of course, at this right. moment, with the minority parliament, the NDP have long been in support of a carbon tax, as have the Liberals. So because they are, for all intents and purposes, uh, ruling together, forming a majority in this minority parliament, those parties are in favor of the carbon tax. They talk about it all the time with, you know, rebates going back to Canadians. Now we find out through the parliamentary budget officer that we were told, like, something like 90% of Canadians will get back more than they pay in. Turns out that's not very much, uh, that's not accurate. So, yeah, you know, the issue, I think the Conservatives on this one, they still, when it comes time to campaign, you know, for people in the country who are eligible voters that have climate change on their list of concerns, they're going to have to have some sort of policy associated with it. Now, they speak in very vague terms about what that might be. Now, I think some of their thunder might have been stolen in this most recent federal budget about incentives, because that's long what Mr. Poliev has said. We incentivize the transition as to uh, what he says is punishing people by adding a tax. So still a lot yet to be understood. But Gordon, just before we say goodbye, what specific question are you saying that nobody has asked? No one has come on the open line and asked why the, the PCs get rid of this tax, but the Liberals can't or not plan that. Well, simply at this moment in time, the Conservatives don't have any power or authority to do it. That's all. If they could, they would. And the Liberals, as we know, is going to increase the tax yep. in July. The plan is absolutely clear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I want to know. I one more thing. Like sure. if I got time? Sure you do. Good enough. Uh, I think the CRTC should have a Good look at the advertisement on television. Anything in particular? My, Anything in particular? Most of the advertising today is, to my opinion, sick. Do you have an example you can share? Uh, some advertisements, like uh, the contestants are all dressed up in silly costumes. For one, and there's a my all sick, and I can't put my mind to one particular thing. But to me, it's all sick. Yeah, well, TV, I suppose, reflects where I guess they attempt to reflect what's going on, what people they think people might be entertained by. And, of course, if it's not on TV, it's somewhere else. Like, I just picked up my telephone, and I guarantee you, everything under the sun is in there. <laughs> so there's, there's one more advertising. There's shows like two men on the screen, and one goes down on his knee right in front of the person. Like, to me, like he's going to perform some kind of a sexual act. Uh, I suppose, as you described right it. off. You don't see no more of it. Yeah, I don't know how much... There's one needs to trying to test the waters and put the sexual act itself right on the screen on television. There's lots of restrictions about what sort of sex can be shown on a television screen. That's what it looks like. Yeah, they imply all sorts of of other stuff as well. Gordon, do you get similarly offended if you see a man and a woman with that type of advertisement or in a TV show or in a movie? 
I don't think it should be on television for especially young minds. Yeah, I suppose with our young minds, we've got another thing is uh, okay. according to eHarmony, uh, sex between a man, no, a woman, a white woman and a black woman, or a white man and a black man, that's real love. <laughs> but there's not much talk about the between. Uh, White man and a white woman, or a black man and a black woman. Seems like that's all no good. Is well, I no good anymore. It's all thrown back in the closet. I personally don't care about who sleeps with who, what color they are, what sex I they are. I don't really care either. Yeah, that's up to now. I think it should be private and it shouldn't be put on the ear, right? Yeah, well, I guess akin to the conversation, like, I don't want government involved in anything in my bedroom. Same thing, I don't think I want them involved in telling me what I can and cannot talk about, look at, read about, see, or anything like that regarding sexuality either. So that's a tricky one. And yeah, you- it's not all that either. There's other things. It's not sexually, not uh, uh, gay or straight or whatever. Well, there's... A lot of stuff, I see it all the time on television, there's not- it's getting sick. It's, it's like normal is no good anymore. Abnormal is good. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. Well, I guess All that's an individual right. decision what you consider to be wrong. Aye? I guess it's based on people's own individual thoughts on what they think is wrong or right. Yeah, it is, but I don't think it should be on television. Uh, the betting ads bother me, Gordon, to be honest with you. Maybe just because it's just the 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 betting on sports ads. They just, like, I like to watch sports, but I'm inundated with ads about betting, which is kind of grinding my gears a little bit. Now, yeah. the, not that that's neither here nor there. Gordon, I appreciate the time, sir. You take care of yourself. Okay, sir. Yeah, thanks for letting me speak. My pleasure. Take care of yourself. You too. Right. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's go to line number one. Janice, you're on the air. Oh, good morning. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Good. I was listening to the lady talking on behalf of the nurse practitioners. Uh Uh-huh. And I would say without a nurse practitioner now, I'd have no health care. Right? Because my doctor uh, suddenly retired last year. And uh, this collaborative clinic that they're all beating their chest about is not in place for everybody. So I don't... I don't understand why they all say this collaborative clinic is going to be the be and an all end for everybody with no doctor when you can't even get on the collaborative clinic. I waited quite a long time. So for folks out there who don't know what to do to try to get into one of these clinics, so there was there's eight operational, there was another 11 announced most recent budget. They're hoping to have 35 to cover the entirety of the province. Is you go to an, a place called Patient Connect. I was on that list for months and months and months before I very recently uh, got accepted into a roster of one of the clinics here on Monday Pond Road, which I'm quite thankful for. But why do you think that they're not the right play or uh, a good approach for the province to take? No, I never said they're not a good approach. Oh, I'm sorry. What I'm saying is they're leading people to believe that if you call that number and register, you are registered for a collaborative clinic. You are not registered for a collaborative clinic. You are registered with Patient Connect, who at some point in your life, which they told me last week, could take me up to three years to get a family doctor because everybody who signs in is based on their health conditions. So 
for one fortunate thing, I'm a healthy person, so I have no chance of getting listed to a collaborative doctor clinic. Well, they didn't ask me about my health condition before uh, I got accepted. I simply just well, registered. You might, you might have got on the on the list before all these other people start. All these doctors retired or quit or went out in the, in a role, and now we're left with so many so many people looking for a doctor it's based on your health conditions i was told your priorities based on your health conditions oh because that wasn't the case when i registered because i don't remember being asked for anything other than my mcp number oh i I have family members i have a sister who definitely needs a doctor she has lupus and everything else and because she doesn't have a mental issue with that she's down further down the list they told me all about it. And I said, well, why are you government out beating their chest about this collaborative clinic is the best thing when you can't get in it? So my only choice now is, well, I have two choices. Go and wait in one of these walking clinics where you can wait for hours and still not get an appointment to see a doctor. Or you can go to a nurse practitioner. And I choose a nurse practitioner, and I have gone several times, and that, that's the person who should be setting up clinic. That's who the the doctors, the government should be setting up, is the nurse practitioners. They can do everything for you. They can certainly do a lot. That's absolutely sure, for sure. So I didn't know things had changed at Patient Connect. So, Dave, what we should do is we should see if we can get someone from Patient Connect to talk about what has changed. Because when I think I put my name on that list about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, something like that. And it took me almost a year, I believe, to get uh, on one of the rosters. So if something has changed based on your overall health, we really should know. So I'm going to try to get someone on to talk about it directly. I was told that if my overall health changes, I could call back into 811 and they will contact the people behind the scenes who assigned you to a doctor. But then again, it's all according to what it is. I need to see an orthopedic specialist. Well, that's not on the priority list. That could take 10 years to get to see a doctor for. That's not the priority list. Yeah, of course, so, not directly related to the collaborative care clinic, but I get your point. No, no. So they won't put me into the collaborative to get to see a doctor because I have a foot that may need to be operated on. No, because that's not a priority health issue. A, health, a priority health issue is you're going to have a heart attack tomorrow. Or you have mental health issues or something that needs to be treated within the next following short period of time. That's what they figure is priority. Well, uh, you know, for people who are trying to see a, men- a mental health professional, they don't feel like they're being prioritized. I can tell you that much. Well, they're being on- prioritized over me. I can guarantee you that. Well, there are people... I was told, distinctly told to myself when this person called me back that it could take me another three years. And I said, look, by three years, I'll have someone else treating me by then, I hope. Because I gave up going out looking for a family doctor because I was under the wherewithal like everybody else's. And if you signed your name, you listed your name on that for collaborative clinic, you would get into one. Well, that's not the case. So I sort of still kept searching myself for a family doctor, which is what I have to do now, go door to door and see who I can get to take me in because they're not looking outside the collaborative clinics for you. They are only going to assign you to a collaborative clinic. They're not assigning you to anybody who's not going to be assigned to a collaborative clinic either.
I appreciate you making time for the show, Janice. Thank you. We'll follow up with the Patient Connect and see what's yeah, changed and why. Because I think people we are under the wrong understanding of this, how this signing up and go to a collaborative clinic and getting your call to see a doctor. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the time. Okay, thanks. You take care. Anyway, no, no, no. Listen, that's not what I called about, really. Nurse practitioner. Well, you only have a couple of seconds now because okay, we're not late. I went to see a nurse practitioner three times now, and they have been fantastic. They can give you your prescription. They can give you appointments. They can send you to see somebody else. So, you know, go to see them. Don't hang out there without a doctor. Go see the nurse practitioner. Thank you, Janice. All right, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, still plenty of time to speak with you. Do not go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Let's go to line number one. Loretta, you're on the air. Hello. 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 I don't know if my phone is going to cut out because I need to check. Can you tell me where you go to see a nurse practitioner? Well, if you're lucky enough to be on one of the collaborative care clinics, you might be able to see one there. You can probably get a list directly from the association uh, representing them so they can tell you someone close by where you live. That's what I would probably do. Okay. Do I have a phone number for that? Let's see if I can get you one quickly here. Please. Okay. No problem. Hold on one second, Loretta, while I type it up. So you don't, do you have a family doctor? Yeah, but she's only doing it. She's retired from home. I have to go to the hospitals and wait for hours and hours. Okay. That's not good, yeah. We want to try to keep people out of... Oh, wait, no. I got the Canadian body, not Newfoundland. Let's see. Newfoundland and Labrador. What part of the province are you calling from? St. John's. Okay. Let's see here if I can get your number easy enough. Contact, contact. There we go. And give us a phone number here, team. How about this? Uh, it just has, brings me to these bloody old contact lists where it's simply asking you to put in your email address. But let me see here. Uh, it's probably easier for me and for the listeners if I put you on hold for a second, Loretta, and see if I can get you a number a bit quicker than this. Oh, well, you know, this might do it. Newfoundland Labrador Nurse Practitioner Association. Got it. All right. You ready? Okay, yes, because I think the phone is going to die. Okay, so you hopefully you have a pencil ready. Yes, So yes. they have a telephone number here locally. It's 753. 753-99. 99. 69. 61. 61. Yep. Thank you very much, and I'm satisfied for that. Well, I'm glad oh, you got what you needed. You. Thank you, Loretta. Have a good day. You too. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Hopefully the Margo is able to sort her out with some information. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning to you. How's everything? That's kind. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Good. Uh, Fatty, I like to throw a full load, a full ten, tandem truckload of bricks. <laughs> okay. At, at the CBC <laughs> television. They're, they're programming. They, they, uh, they're scheduling. They, they, they do what they like with it. You take, for instance, Coronation Street. Now that comes on regularly at 7:30. Yeah. And then, and then the, the hockey playoff starts. Okay. Uh-huh. So they change it there. They put that on then at 2:30. But instead of 7:30, the block that where it plays in, they put on reruns of Rick Mercer, just for gags, Land and Sea, and and all that stuff. That's all reruns they're putting on there. 
but still now he takes Coronation Street and puts it somewhere else where no one knows where it's to or, or is inconvenient. You know what I mean? I, well, I do know. Now, I don't watch uh, much Coronation Street as much. I, I tell you what, I used to you, watch you it will, a fair bit you of will it. You when you get older, right? <laughs> no, no, I was going to admit. And, in fact, my wife bought me a T-shirt once said, uh, Real Men Watch Coronation Street, and I thought that was pretty funny. I used to wear it around all the time. My wife loves it. Uh, and I do, indeed, enjoy watching it if I'm around when she's catching it. But she doesn't watch it at a regularly scheduled time because we're both usually busy at that time of the evening. So we, we just PBR out, and she watches when she gets a chance on the weekend, so, yeah. But, you know, uh, they shouldn't be allowed to do that, you know? The CRTC should step in there. <laughs> if, 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 the, if, if uh, I could understand it if the, the, the spot, the 7.30 spot, they were going to start the hockey playoffs at 7.30, and uh, they moved it. Okay, I, I'm satisfied with that. This It's interfering with their spot, but it's not. There's, hockey don't start till 8.30. Okay. Or nine o'clock, and they they take that out of that seven thirty spot, puts it somewhere else, and then runs runs all these reruns, you know, and and who wants to keep watching the reruns? I don't anyway. Yeah, even though I love a bit of Land and Sea as well. But, yeah, I don't know why they would have made that switch because it's the same length of show, right? Right, it is. It's the same half hour. Same half hour. Uh, What storyline are you following on Corey? What's on the go? Oh, <laughs> this, I, I, I'm watching this fellow now that's got the, 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 he's taking over, trying to take over the, the, the Knickers factory. <laughs> <laughs> so, who was running that? I can't see if I can remember now. It's Clara. Clara, is it Clara? Okay. It used to be uh, Bowling. Uh, used to, I can't remember their names now. But, uh, anyways, uh, Quite a story, you know. I mean, I've been watching it for years and years, and I'm sort of addicted to it now. And I'm sort of pissed off because now I don't know where I got to stay up, get up. Either I got to wait till twelve thirty or one o'clock in the night to see it, yeah. or I got to I got to get up Sunday morning and start watching at eight o'clock till till eleven o'clock, you know. Because they they have a rerun of of it all on Sunday morning. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just not good enough. You wouldn't happen to have a, the CRTC number, do you? I suppose I could find a number for the CRTC. I don't know if they feel complaints like this, but, hey, I'll let them tell you whether or not they uh, they do. So who are some of your favorite characters while I look for a number? Who is uh, the what, pardon? Who are some of your favorite characters while I look for a number? Oh, I like Steve. <laughs> well, Steve's been on forever. I mean, this yeah, the program yeah. started back in 1960, so you can throw some of the names like uh, Rita and Ken Barlow and Audrey yeah. and Steve. and You uh, know, Ken Barlow's been on it since it started. Uh, amazing. Not since it started, but he's the oldest player under now, you know? He's been under the longest. I've met a couple of cast members when I was on Rogers on Out of the Fog, and uh, Carl Wells used to bring them through for his uh, Corey Q&A. So I had one lovely uh, experience with a lady named Jenny McAlpine. She plays Fizz. And I had Buddy who played Les Battersby on as well. He was a lovely man as well. So Oh, yeah. He yeah. was pretty good, too. Yeah. yeah. He was pretty, cr- pretty crotchety. Yeah. All right. So I can give you a number. Here we go. So, they're calling about, you're calling about TV. Bring back Corey. Okay. Toll free, one eight seven seven. Yep. 
2782. That's the only number on their page. There's all kinds of digital links, but try that number. See if, if that's not the one, they'll be able to put you on to the right one. Yeah, 27, what was it, 27? Uh, 2782. 82. Okay. Thanks, Patty. No problem. Good luck with it, John. Okay. All right. All right, bye-bye. You mess with people's quarry, you're messing with the wrong people. You know, the one thing, I don't really watch much of the stories. When we were kids, of course, some of the stories came out around supper time. So leading into before you had a chance to watch Little Three's Company or the Jeffersons or something, right? You'd watch General Hospital and then Another World. I love you, Dennis. I hate you, Paige. But I love you, Dennis. I hate you, Paige. Right? But, of course, Corey, working-class people, not all just the beautifuls. No one's coming back from the dead, that kind of stuff, like some of the other American soaps. So, yeah, Corey, sacrosanct. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. So people are chiming in, trying to help out the gentleman who misses Corey in its normal time slot. Is that, yes, you can go online and watch just about anything, but... Not everybody uses those types of services, whether it be CBC, Jam, or otherwise. And then someone else called and said to David, there's a time-shifting feature on your cable. I don't think it's on mine. I think we have a pretty complete package where, for instance, you can watch uh, when Corey is uh, broadcasting Vancouver. And so if that's something, someone look at their TV menu. I have Bell. I don't know what uh, Gordon has, but... Uh, it's, I don't think it's on mine. I don't recall seeing those types of things. Maybe I'm just not looking hard enough. But if you want to give him a little bit more info, we can do it. All right, let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. That's Tony Wakeham. Tony, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. I've uh, heard lots of people on your show this morning talking about the, the role that nurse practitioners play in our healthcare system. And I have the question why the Liberal government continues to ignore the importance of nurse practitioners and, of course, the financial burden being placed on many individuals in this province who have to pay out of pocket to access these services. And the latest statement by the Minister of Health doesn't do anybody any good in terms of improving health care services in this province. This is all about access, access to primary health care. We know there are thousands of people in this province right now who do not have access to that family physician. But they can, in some cases, get access to a nurse practitioner who's opened up a clinic. But unfortunately, they're continuing to have to pay that nurse practitioner because government has failed, failed for months. I've been raising this in the House of Assembly for months, failed to find a way to compensate those nurse practitioners. You know, for the minister to say, uh, they'll be, uh, they can only work in the public system if they want to be paid by government, because that's essentially what he's saying. At the same time, they've increased the number of seats available for the nurse practitioner program. They're saying the only way that you can work in a government system is by being a direct public employee on salary. Well, if you look around our province, there are a number of doctors who practice fee-for-service, but there's a number who already who practice on salary. They're on salary. And then there are others now with the new blended capitation model will have a combination of both. But to simply turn around and think about the idea that we want to maximize people's skill sets and we're going to eliminate one part of a solution by turning around and saying, you can practice, but you can only practice in one way. I think that's totally unfair to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador and certainly unfair to the nurse practitioners who are stepping up to fill that role. 
I always would be interested in knowing about what the rationale is. I've opined, and I might be off base, but I think this plays a role in it, is that when you're trying to, to do what you can to protect the public sector, you will put things in place to dissuade practicing healthcare professionals from leaving the public to move off into the private. That kind of feels like that's part of the thought here. Now, not that that makes any sense or not that, that that's the right approach, but that kind of feels like what the province is doing on this front. But if we're talking about the overall goal of easing the burden on the system, dealing with backlogs, dealing with emergency room congestion, what have you, for me to be able to walk down Empire Avenue, walk into a private, a so-called private nurse practitioner clinic, get what I need, that's all I really want the government to provide. I don't really necessarily care uh, if it's a fee-for-service or a blended capitation or any of that kind of stuff, because that's for the professionals to worry about. I just want access to the care based on my tax dollars. No additional money out of pocket. Right. But that's exactly the point. We don't want it to be in a private system. We want it to be part of the public system. When you walk into that physician's office that's billing fee-for-service, you don't pay out of pocket. That physician has a mechanism to bill the province. So it's they're part of the public system. You know, salaries are docs are part of the public system. So we want it to be maintained and be part of the public system because right now it's forced out into a private system. The fact that you have to go and join a clinic and pay a fee for membership and then pay a fee every time you visit a nurse practitioner, that's private health care. What the nurse practitioners have stepped up and done is exactly that. Why? Because government has failed to say, how can we make this work? How can we find a way to use nurse practitioners so that we can have people in this province having access to primary health care? And another frustrating part is when they have examples where they have no physicians in emergency departments. I know of a case on the Northern Peninsula where they call the nurse practitioner up to go up and work the shift in emergency because they didn't have an emergency room physician. Now, you tell me they're asking that nurse to go up and do everything that they wanted that emergency room physician to do in an emergency department, but they're not looking at how we might compensate them or how we might look at things differently. This is the problem. If we're really going to have a health accord and we're really going to make changes in health care in this province, we have to have people working to their full skill sets, and we have to find ways to compensate them, not simply keep doing what we've always done. And that's the problem here. It's an insult to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador, and it's an insult to the nurse practitioners out there who are working and providing a service that people need every single day. Yeah, I, you know, we'll do some more time uh, with the minister responsible. I don't really understand this one because, and you know, you add in the, the scope of practice issue, which is an important conversation. You know, we were talking about it for a long, long time, and nothing was nothing was changing, and then all of a sudden... Two specific groups did see their scope of practice change. And now I don't think it's been that welcomed in one corner, particularly the registered nurses. They have really important questions that they don't have answers to. So we were thinking, well, if you're trained to do something, let's allow you to do it. But it took forever for that to happen, which I still don't understand what the lag time was all about there either. And inside the registered nurses world, you know, it's great that some nurses in specialized care, maybe some more remote rural parts of the province, will be able to prescribe prescriptions and diagnostic imaging and lab tests and make referrals. But they're asking as to whether or not they're going to get paid more and how the training is going to work, three modules over the course of the year. There's questions about supervision even after or during these three training mo uh, modules. But if I'm a nurse that already feels overworked, I'm not so, so sure I want to take on more work for no additional pay. 
like most people in this world, I don't want to do more for no more pay either. That's exactly right. I mean, some of the changes I've made, like in pharmacists, I think the expansion of pharmacy role is a good thing. I think that there's opportunities here if we can help alleviate those backlogs in emergency departments because we have other ways of people being seen, we should be looking at how we do it. It's not about, you know, I, I find it amazing that to address the uh, wait times in emergency department at the health science, they turn around and say, we're going to enlarge the uh, area. We're going to enlarge the emergency department. That's not the solution. The solution is to keep people out of emergency departments. That's what we got to be focused on, and we got to be using every single provider out there, whether they're advanced care paramedics, nurse practitioners, all of those type of people that have a skill set that I'm sure if you asked, they'd be more than willing to sit down and talk about what they could do, not what they can't do. Yeah, fair ball. I appreciate the time, Tony. Anything else before we take a break? Well, thank you, Patty, for your time, and I hope the minister reconsiders this for all of those seniors and people on fixed income who are spending money out of their pockets every single time to go see a primary care provider. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Tony. Tony uh, Wakeham is the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. Let's go to line two. Uh, Christine, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I'm still laughing at the the uh, Carnation Street. <laughs> I, I watch it myself. I'm calling this morning about the nurse practitioners. I worked in Eastern Health for 28 years um, in service, and I also have a really good friend that's a single mom who is a, a BN nurse who is doing her nurse practitioner, and she is working so hard. I feel that this is such a slap in her face uh, for the sacrifices that she's making to do this for the people in Newfoundland by our government. I myself have to drive an hour to see my doctor, and he has hired two nurse practitioners. Without them, he could never manage. There's no way in the world that he could manage. He does an open clinic with no appointments, and I mean, for us to drive from Carbonier in, I, we make it a day of whatever we got to do. We have medical conditions. We have forms that have to be filled out, and, all the, and it all takes time by these doctors. These nurse practitioners do that. And I have no problem paying my nurse practitioner to fill out forms. Um, but, I mean, my daughter lives in New West Valley. She has been 12 months waiting to get a consult. It wasn't until we activated online and got somebody, told them the history, and they said she needs to see someone now. So, I mean, outside of St. John's in rural, we are suffering bad out here. The nurse practitioners are our only hope at this point. I have two friends from Ukraine that are doctors that are stuck against a brick wall trying to get relicensed so that they can start working. They've been here a year now. I can only feel their frustration. I mean, the lack of communication with these doctors that, are, that came here that want to be relicensed and to go practicing to help out Newfoundland, that's why they came here, on insight, so that they could open a clinic, so they could go work in the hospitals, so they could be in these places that rural that needs it. New West Valley Clinic and emergency is closed so often, it's like a building that's never used. It's crazy. People are going to be dying if they have not already died. We need these nurse practitioners to save us. And, I mean, I don't get the government. We have a premier who's a doctor. We should be seeing more push and a rush through the, getting this done. I, I just am so frustrated and ashamed to be a resident of Newfoundland at this point because I think we are falling behind. Yeah, now so some of that's not on government, though, either. And that's not to defend them. It's just to talk about process. So you really need the college 
to be the lead force in changing some of these issues regarding the speed of uh, transferring credentials and accreditation and what's required to do so. So that's really where that starts. Government can do what they want, say what they want, but until the college uh, makes all the necessary changes, we're really just talking about politicians talking for the sake of. Yes, and I understand that. I know there's a due process, but, I mean, you're seeing the frustration. In the end, it's the residents of Newfoundland that are seeing all this, and they're mad, they're angry, they're upset, and some of them are very ill. A lot of people are slipping through the cracks, and unfortunately, I don't think we're seeing the outcome of all this at this point yet. It'll be years down the road. But, I mean, I've seen it myself. Things being put in a file and forgotten about because they're just too busy. And it wasn't until the nurse practitioners came in and were able to catch up on a lot of these things. These nurse practitioners are well-trained. This is not a matter that they're doing a one-year course or anything. These no, no. are four-year courses on top of their uh, BN. So, I mean, let's Let's give these people credit. They are experienced. They can do what we need them to do. Then they can pass them over to the doctors that are needed for the specialty parts. I mean, I don't understand the comments that the government is coming back with. It's so backwards, it's unreal. I appreciate you making time for the show, Christine. Off to the news we go. You're always welcome. Thank you. Have You're a welcome. Good- you too. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, I believe there was some mention of the Mayor of Bonavista, John Norman, this morning. And this is about some communication regarding the hiring of the two new doctors in Bonavista. We'll hear from the mayor after this. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of Bonavista. That's John Norman. Mayor Norman, you're on the air. Hello. Good Hello. morning. Good morning to you. Patty, uh, you had uh, some calls regarding health care today, I hear, and uh, some specifically zeroing in on the Bonavista situation. I'd love to chat about it. Sure. The one caller said that at one point, I believe this is what she said, is that you made the declaration that two doctors have been secured. It turns out Mr. Diamond, the CEO of the Health Authority, was on the program last Friday. He says they just have oral agreements in place, no contracts have been finalized. So that was the gist of the conversation regarding some comments that you had made. Did you make those? I, I don't know. I don't recall. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think this is a case of really getting into semantics. Um, we're not talking about uh, just two contracts. We're talking about three, if not more, contracts here now with other uh, potential physicians coming on side. And uh, in the short time I had between uh, hearing that call uh, this morning and uh, on, on the show here now, I was able to reach one of the physicians that I've been uh, talking with for some time now, uh, just to confirm uh, from uh, the physician themselves uh, that, yes, indeed, uh, they have signed their name uh, to a contract. So what I'm most troubled with, and on behalf of counsel, we're all troubled with, is when there are seeds of doubt and misinformation uh, that are being planted. I fully understand that the health minister, the premier and I, and and, and our constant ongoing meetings in person, telephone calls are one thing. The health authority going from regional to province-wide is going through obviously a lot of changes. There are changes in people's positions. I can't 
hold any one of them uh, to account uh, to the minute details of individual contracts for an individual facility when they have fires all over the province with contracts all over the province. So I won't really get into any debate there. I've simply spoken to uh, doctors themselves on where they are with their various negotiations. And I just wanted to take the opportunity to reiterate that uh, we're in a much more positive place uh, than we have been on the Bonavista Peninsula. Uh, almost all of the uh, call shift periods, uh, ER shifts for the Bonavista Hospital this month, for the upcoming month, are filled. We do have physicians that have either signed contracts or in the very, very late stages of contract review. And I would remind everyone that this situation in Bonavista and other places, as you can hear on your own uh, show today, it's a pressure cooker. And I grew up uh, with a physician as a parent. And healthcare in Newfoundland, especially rural Newfoundland, has always been a pressure cooker. But it's quite extreme now. And I, for one, and our town council does not want to put any extra undue pressure to the nurse practitioners, to the doctors that are going through these negotiations. They are coming to Bonavista, places like Bonavista. They are testing the waters. Uh, they are very pleased uh, when we speak to them about what uh, deals we've been able to work out as a municipality and a region with the provincial government and the health authority. They're quite pleased. Now we're talking to them about other ways in which we can support everything from housing to childcare, uh, which we have our hands on. But we need to remind everyone that we are a welcoming community. A lot of the physicians that have come to Bonavista are having a really enjoyable time. Uh, it's very enjoyable, somewhat high-pressure work. This is not a small cottage hospital. This is a hospital that covers a region of over 8,000 people. They see real emergencies. They also see primary health care issues. So they have a full scope of practice, and a lot of the physicians I'm talking to are really enjoying it, but it is a very stressful situation. I have, and counselors have, opted to take a role in public life and certainly ask us questions, bring us into the media, grab us in the grocery store, as people often do. But please, let's not go to that level when it comes to our healthcare professionals. They are here to do a job, and we don't want to put extra any added pressure or undue duress on them calling them at home, uh, trying to find them uh, at home, calling them on weekends, grabbing them in a grocery store. Uh, we, we understand that, like everywhere, people are under stress, they're getting frustrated, but approaching healthcare professionals in this way certainly won't help our cause. And we just want to take the opportunity today to reiterate that the town council and, and myself are leading the discussions with the health department and the health authority. We are making significant inroads and significant improvements. So I don't want to get into a battle of he said this, she said that, he says this, he says that. We're, we're well past that. We are making real, real progress. And some of the physicians that are engaged and that have signed a contract are very pleased to be in Bonavista. They're testing the waters. They may have signed a one-year contract for now. They're going to review how they find the community over this year, and perhaps they will make a longer-term commitment. It's now up to us 
to make the very best impression we can make as a community, and that's what council is focused on. Yeah, and I can't speak to what goes on in Bonavista. I haven't been there in quite a long time, but, you know... The, the pressure cooker, as you refer to it, really drives people's emotions and then consequently their decisions. So, you know, whether or not there's uh, ink that's currently drying on a contract or there's been verbal agreements. Well, I had one of your residents call last week saying that he personally spoke with one of the doctors who I think was here for a couple of weeks and has now gone back to the home province, which I believe he said was Ontario, and is committed to this fellow. I'll leave his name out of it. That He's absolutely coming back. Mr. Diamond was really quite optimistic that the verbal agreements and or whatever you say there's one that's already signed a contract good i think ultimately when people step back as long as the effort's been made and has now been proven to be successful that the doctors and others are coming to your region that's the good thing so everyone wants everything to happen immediately and self-gratification is you know driving a lot of people's uh, thoughts and commentary as long as it gets done because nothing happens quick in this world especially when we're talking about a healthcare professional a doctor in this case shutting down with their practice wherever they are to then make the move because it may not just be them it might be them and their family so things can take time i know people don't want to stand back and take a deep breath and let things unfold their natural course they want it right now and i get that except that the professionals that we're recruiting it might not be as simple as okay i'm willing to come when tomorrow no i can't make it tomorrow i need three months because i have x y or z ongoing where i live so yeah Absolutely. And as elected officials, we have to, uh, as best we can, uh, have level heads, calm heads, uh, rue the day. And uh, that's what's happening in this case. We've, we've had our say. We've had our public debates. I'm pretty sure you've heard me and many of the viewers have heard me. I know the Premier and the Health Minister have heard me. And uh, we are at a, a different stage now, a later stage in the negotiations and discussions. And I would just say thank you to those nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors that are working in Bonavista, those that have now committed to work in Bonavista. And these are all steps in the right direction. We're getting closer and closer. But as you say, this takes time. And to be the first doctor or or two to uh, to sign, that's a huge step when there are seven vacant physician roles and multiple vacant roles for nurse practitioners. You're taking on a large large responsibility so thank you to those that have verbally signed or agreed and those that have signed with ink uh over the past week or two and we're very open and welcoming uh and discussion uh with any other doctors coming in we're open to everything that they want to talk about every way we can help we will as a municipality uh very quickly i've been trying to keep up with it but i think it's shifted a couple of times the council's uh, decision and approach they're taking to short short-term rentals airbnb and i know you own a couple of rental properties yourself there was th- thought of a moratorium not offering any more licenses for these accommodations then i think it changed slightly so where are we on that because here comes tourism season <laughs> Yes, we're going through that uh, right now. So uh, we did have a moratorium on the uh, uh, short-term accommodations of all sorts, those that use platforms like Airbnb as well as others. Um, That has now been lifted uh, by motion of council, but what has been implemented uh, by a new motion of council are stricter regulations and bylaws. So we have caps on the percentage of uh, residential properties that can be converted into accommodations uh, if there are streets with a certain number of houses, very small side streets, side lanes. Uh, 
There is a cap to the minimum number of uh, houses on a street before you can trigger uh, the use of an accommodation on that street. Some of those streets don't meet those requirements. There are other streets in the community where there are 100, 150, 200 homes on a single street, very long street. Uh, they have not yet reached their uh, carrying capacity for accommodation, so there's still some opportunity. Uh, but slowly but surely, we are slowing, if not stopping, the development of these uh, short-term rental conversions uh, from long-term rental specifically in various parts of the community. But we all knew that an overarching moratorium in perpetuity was, was not going to happen. That was a mechanism advised by our legal counsel to put in place while we took the months we needed to develop the proper legislation that we could legally implement and that we could actually monitor and effectively enforce from the town hall. Do you recuse yourself from these conversations given the fact you are one of these property owners? I do not, uh, nor do other members of council that are involved with the tourism sector. Uh, I, for one, represent less than 5% of the uh, accommodations in Bonavista. We have over 170 now. Uh, it has been discussed with council, with my own council, uh, legal council, but also municipal council, the ideas of conflict of interest, perceived conflict of interest, and so on. And it has been decided multiple times uh, that when you're a small part of a large cohort, such as accommodation owners, uh, you can speak to it, especially if uh, council is not raising issue. And council has, up until now, uh, said there is no issue. If that uh, time ever changes, well, I'm not going to argue <laughs> with a vote of council. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Norman. Thank you. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's John Norman. He's the Mayor of Bonavista. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Sam, you're on the air. Good morning. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing okay this morning, Sam. How about you? Good, good. Uh, and the reason why I'm calling is uh, because uh, of the doctor shortage and doctor problems here in Newfoundland. We all f- familiar with it. It's the same old story. But I had a friend of mine that wanted to come to Canada to work as uh, work here in Newfoundland as a doctor, and they had a chance to go to England. The College of Physicians in uh, Sir, uh, in St. John's refused them to come to Canada to work here in Newfoundland. And for whatever reason, I don't know why. And we've got a, such a doctor shortage here, and we're not, they're not, the College of Physicians and Surgeons is not allowing doctors to come work here in Newfoundland. I mean, that's where all the problems is coming from the College of Physicians and Doctors not able to come here because of them. That's what we're, that's what we've been, we've been told, right? So the college gets to say, no, you're not allowed to come? Or. That's correct, sir. Okay, I, I didn't think it worked quite like that. Well, what I've heard, they, she, they applied for to come here to work here in Newfoundland, and they had all the credentials in place. It was over one little thing, a stupid reason, whatever it was, would not allow them to come here to Newfoundland to work. And it was the, and that's what we're hearing. It, the problem is all based at the, the College of Physicians and Doctors is the number one reason we're not getting a lot of doctors to come here in Newfoundland because of the doctor's criteria. Don't fit to their credentials right well i don't know what that one little thing might be but there was a story not that long ago people would be familiar with about a doctor who's you know a graduate of memorial university's medical school uh practicing for some 35 or 40 years living in the united states in boston in particular and the thought was that you know he was complaining about the fees and the things like that to have uh, licenses transferred and credentials what have you and the province said they would cover it and all the up and down it went and then everyone was really uh, mad with the government that 
the doctor didn't come because he was willing to go to Fogo Island and practice for free for the summer. But the, yeah. the other part of that story that didn't get the attention that it needed is that he refused to do a criminal background check. And so it was as fundamental as that. All the other issues were in... Uh, all the other docs were in a row, but he refused to do one of the things. So I don't know what the issue is for this particular doctor, what was lacking in his application. I really don't know. But some things are fairly important for us to make sure that they're willing to do before we just take them on. That's right. You mean, and you mean, we got doctors in this country here. We, we got, uh, I think there's uh, a lot of uh, health care workers that's immigrants that's working in this country here as servers and working at gas stations, and that cannot practice. There are doctors in this country and nurses doing other jobs, and they could be working in our health care system because our system don't allow them to work there. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of th- issues that I don't think we've got fully fleshed out here about what's the hurdle what's the hold up like if i went to trinity college in dublin i should be able to move over here in a heartbeat and set up shop you know yeah I, of course you've got to make sure that through an examination that you've got all the credentials that you say you do and have all the training and knowledge that you say you do little things like that but it needn't be as cumbersome as it currently seems to be there's another issue that i don't know what colleges and med schools are going to do about this but there are an enormous number of canadian citizens who have done their medical training abroad that can't get a residency they'd move home and work in a heartbeat but they can't get it because of course the priority is for the graduates of the 17 or 18 medical schools that are here in the country but if we're really really serious about filling some of these roles we've got to expand opportunities for actual canadians who went to med school whether in australia or the states or in ireland to be able to get a residency position because if you can't get that then you can't practice that's right. I mean, you can't. It seems like uh, I know, like a lot of Canadians have worked, went to uh, training to other provinces, other provinces, other countries abroad, and also uh, doctors that they travel abroad. But we don't understand when we go to each one of these countries, we depend on the doctors and their healthcare system that they have there. It works for us when we go there. Why cannot they practice as well as here? I mean, if you got a if they can speak English and they got a good criminal background check, and and you I mean we should they should be able to work here, not going down there working at the gas station and serving gas, pumping gas, or else down there fast food at McDonald's or A and W. They should be in our healthcare, and it's time for this government to start changing to make these people aware that they can work here. And you I mean it don't have to be from a Commonwealth country; it should be from any country in the world, as long as their English is able to communicate. They should be able to practice here, and you I mean. Our, you mean it seems like this here the doctor medical associations the western healthcare eastern healthcare the college of physicians they've been talked about in the last 10 years and actually nothing's been done they know this is a doctor shortage it's been going on forever and there's nothing being done why can't these staggered changes I had to wait I called the 811 number my doctor had to cancel my appointment to go to emergency I had to wait 3 weeks without no meds because I call I called that eight one one number and I never got no service from from nothing. So I had to wait three weeks until my appointment for my doctor to go see for to get any meds because I am a diabetic. So you mean we they gotta start acting on us here. And there's no nurse practitioner was available to help me and there was no doctor could not see me because you had counsel appointment. The doctors here has worked the debt and the reason why we're losing because they're they're overworked and they should things gotta change in the healthcare. It's not because of the money, it's because of the workloads they got. And we bring in more doctors in this country would ease on the workloads. And the, and I mean this college physicians or whoever is responsible gotta make changes to allow us here. Like now. Not talk about it and do nothing. Fair enough, Sam. I appreciate making time for the show this morning. 
Okay, have a good day. You buddy. too. Take good care. You too. All bye right, bye. bye-bye. Yeah, now, of course, when vetting uh, a healthcare professional, in this case, many people point to doctors, we do have to do and be thorough and uh, comprehensive vetting needs to be done. Everyone agrees with that, I would think. You know, graduating from med schools are not all created equal. So, yes, whether it be the training you've got and yes, to be able to navigate the language barriers, what have you, all part and parcel of doing it. But it just seems to be pretty cumbersome at this moment in time you know if it was easy enough and if we just talk about uh, domestic travel uh, for doctors and mobility if the atlantic provinces can figure it out and do what they've done to allow for an ease in moving but that doesn't seem to be the case uh, across the rest of the country atlantic canada's got it right i believe but anyway there's a lot to those conversations as usual all right good show today to kick off the week big thanks to everyone who supports the program all of the listeners callers emailers tweeters you're all right we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye